Hey everybody, this is That Girl with the Curls. This is Sam bringing you another great episode of That Girl with the Curls. And uh, when I say great, I mean pretty much epic. This is quite possibly, at least for now, the longest episode of the podcast. Um, I'm not going to tell you how long because you'll probably already know by now once you start listening. Uh, this is uh, this episode is with Jack Chambers, who you will also know from the Intercomics podcast, uh, where Jack talks comic books with his uh, lovely co-hosts. So uh, Jack and I knew each other, or still know each other, it's not like in the past tense, uh, know each other from when we both worked at Word of the Nerd, and we would very often podcast together for DC Confidential, and it's been a while since we've really been able to uh, chat because he's in England, and I am not, so um, scheduling is always a little bit rough around the edges here. But um, I think I'm just going to call this one a uh, Crisis on Infinite Podcasts Part 1, just in case uh, uh, we are trying to schedule me for uh, another crossover so that I end up on the Intercomics pod, so someday, I don't know. So this will be a part one, question mark, uh, holdover until perhaps with the day that comes that I do guest star on, uh, or not guest star, but just guest on uh, Intercomics pod. But uh, enjoy the episode. We get into it mostly about Wonder Woman, but we bounce around as as we tend to do uh, about a, a whole bunch of stuff. But we're generally talking about Wonder Woman uh, because Jack and I are both huge fans of the Azarello Chang run that just that wrapped up recently, and are not so much big fans of the new creative team as you will hear. So uh, sit back, enjoy the Wonder Woman and such various other things that we end up talking about. And uh, yeah, I'll see you back with another uh, episode. Missing your Seattle archivistness as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's slightly snowing here, so I feel like it's Snowmageddonopolis. Nice. <laughs> I have a friend in uh, New York, and she has a bunch of friends in Buffalo, and it's just been absolutely insane down there at the moment, just like eight, nine feet of snow and shit like that. So Yeah. <laughs> Literally snowpocalypse down there. <laughs> yeah, they they get it in spades. We we get a slight dusting of snow here in uh, in Washington State, and then it's like, oh my god, what are we gonna do? Pretty much how it happens in England as well. Like if if there if there is any sign of it, the snow settling for more than about a day, all the bread and milk just sells out of every supermarket. It's the end of the world. <laughs> we need to stock up. Oh god, we're all gonna die. I like that if uh, if the apocalypse ever did happen, Britain would just be stocked up on bread and milk, and that's how you survive. It's just bread and it's ridiculous. It's like no cheese to go with that. I mean, come on. Exactly. You need some rustic bread and <laughs> good wine. Oh my god! So I was I was starting to go through the um, the Finches issue. I've got it. I've to... got it open in front of me, and I'm just like, oh god. I know. <laughs> I was like, I have... your tweet was just like. <laughs> Comics don't tend to do exposition anymore unless you're Wonder Woman 36 and you put it all on one page. Oh, God. God, 
that page just killed me. I was like, seriously? God damn it. Oh, oh, oh God. You, you didn't happen to listen to the episode of the podcast where I ranted about that issue, did you? No, oh, I didn't. I'm sorry. I, that's fine. Um, I I just went off on one, just like and suddenly Catwoman is my favorite DC book because of the new creators, and Wonder Woman is my least favorite because of the new creators. The hell has frozen over. The world is topsy turvy. Like, what the fuck is going on? Because the new <laughs> like cats and the, dogs living together. Exactly. Massacre. The new Catwoman is fucking awesome. And this is just I, the worst. Just the worst. Yeah, I have Catwoman in my in my queue right now. Oh, I haven't um, read it yet. It's like classic. It reads more like an old school detective comics kind of thing. Like oh, detective good. comics is really good at the moment as well because it's all about uh, you've got Manipal and Bucciolato taking over, and they're like it's all noiry detective-y mm-hmm. stuff, and which is the Batman stuff I really like. And this is basically that and Selina dealing with the mob and like the Gotham crime underworld and stuff like that. And then she but puts she the costume on in the second... This was 35 they started, and then 36, the second, the one that came out uh, last week. And she put the costume on, and it's just fucking glorious. And uh, covers by Jay Lee are just amazing. Yeah, I've been meaning to get into, like, uh, Batman Superman, because uh, that's Greg Pak and Jay Lee, right? Yeah, it's all right. Jay Lee's... I'm not a big fan of Jay Lee on interiors. I find him a bit intense. Mm-hmm. Like I love him as a cover artist because he can really nail like an iconic pose and just like a, a snapshot. But his yeah. interiors just seem to lack like movement, and they just feel like one still image after another. Like his action scenes are just like posing and stuff like that. It doesn't feel there's no real sense of like physical movement to it. Yeah, you don't think that that character is actually doing what they're you know depicted doing. Exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Okay, well, yeah, I might, like, just uh, borrow that from someone then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't come highly recommended from me, but take, take that uh, with a grain of salt, you know. That's true, everyone's taste is slightly different. Exactly, uh, yeah. I know people do who have been enjoying it, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> oh, uh, I started recording already, so I guess we should... Do we want to consider this a crossover, or is it just you on my show, or... Yes, yeah, wanna... kind, kind of a, a cross-pod bonanza. Intercomics. Inter- you know, girl with the intercomics. <laughs> girl with the intercurls, maybe. <laughs> the intercurls. Inter- intercurl, intercurl mix. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll figure it I, out. I, when I bust out the long hair, like when I did in my youth, I had long, luscious locks as well, like yourself. So luscious curls yeah. that you were like. Have you, oh. have you seen me with long hair, by the way? No, I think I've oh, only ever dude. seen you with short hair. Dude, you've been missing out. <laughs> You'll have to send a picture then. It's, it's pretty intense. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'll send it on Facebook. Hold on a sec. I've got, I've got them on my phone because people ask, and I'm like, well, when I went through a heavy metal phase, this is what I looked like. And everybody's like, what the fuck? And my driving license is still that as well. So, <laughs> yeah. Like, have you got proof of ID, sir? I was like, I have, but... <laughs> I really don't want to show it you. It doesn't look like me. So there's that. Yeah, the photo I have of my driver's license uh, was taken pretty much like the the second time I renewed it, but I haven't changed it because I've done it all online since because I don't want to wait in the DMV yeah. <laughs> to redo it. So I still look like myself, but slightly, you know, I'm just more surly in that picture, which <laughs> if you can imagine me more surly. I was going to say, it sounds just like you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've but sent, yeah, I've sent 16-year-old Jack through on Facebook. 
and I'll find like 18 year old Jack when it was fully long because that that one's quite intense. <laughs> you look almost like Brian May. Yeah, I look like I remember Led Zeppelin basically. And this is me at my sister's wedding, rocking the full hair. It's grown out a bit. Oh, Isn't that insane? That is so weird. Down past my shoulders. Like, I'm not messing around. You could be a part of the podcast just as the boy with the curls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently so. But uh, yeah, so we're basically here to talk some Wonder Woman news and opinions. And yeah. Stuff. Are we going to touch on Michelle McLaren and all that sort of stuff as well? Oh, yeah. We'll hit it off. Yeah, so, looking um, forward to it. So, oddly enough, I'm actually going to be talking about the second volume of, of Azrello and Chang's run tomorrow on Sean Rosado's cast, uh, okay. the Sean cast. Yeah. So, and I'm running that one where I'm just kind of like, you know, explain the plot, basically, and then we talk about shit. It's like, okay, well, this is good for me, because now I'll get to talk more about Azarello and, uh, <laughs> and Chang. Which is always a good thing. It, it is. I mean, because I, I mean, you and I shared that opinion where we're like, this is like one of the best runs in like a long time. Yeah, yeah. This is now my definitive run of Wonder Woman. Full stop. Mm-hmm. And this is my Wonder Woman now, which is pretty crazy. And that's interesting because yeah, I because I always did like the I went back and and read a lot of stuff. Like I I have Greg Rucka's Hikatea. I have Gail Simone's The Circle. Like these various runs. I don't have a lot of George Perez though, which I've. All I've heard is like you have to have that, you have to have that. <laughs> like, but yeah, this was the the on bo- you know when you get it, when you talk about the new fifty two rebooting stuff. Yeah, like this was pretty much like my definition of how to re- you know quote unquote reboot a character. Yep. And make it relevant. I agree. Yeah, because it it was. And, and I have a controversial opinion that I prefer the new fifty two origin the original origin as well which is very controversial apparently which i didn't realize it is i and and i get that like i understand people being all like you know she's not molded from clay um she's now a demigod the a biological daughter of hippolyta and zeus and and the thing is like i'm okay with that in terms of this story that they're telling in i think it, it all comes down to the writing because you know I think Wonder Woman can be a malleable character in the sense that her origin is as much mythological as it can be realistic. By the way, are we, are we recording yet, or is this all pre? Yeah, we're recording. Oh, okay. I didn't realize. Yep. I didn't realize we were actually going. I thought there was going to be like an intro and stuff. And... Oh no, 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 we're going. Holy shit! Okay. <laughs> Caught you off guard. <laughs> but continue. Yeah, yeah. So the um, yeah, her origin that when Azrael and Chang changed it. I mean. The thing about the new 52 is that, guess what? It's going to probably go back at some point. Like, <laughs> They're going to retcon it somehow. We're heading towards another crisis. Well, I mean, Convergence is coming up, isn't it? So Sorry, there's going to yeah. be... My theory for Convergence is they're going to basically undo all the un- unpopular stuff. I'm like, oh, look, <laughs> pre-New 52, this character has come back. So you don't have to worry about the New 52 one that wasn't selling very well. Mm-hmm. All the books that have been cancelled will have their other alternate universe versions come in and you know, show up and just take over and be like, look, I'm likable again. Yes. Remember me? It's like, yeah, I remember you before they took you away and made me hate them. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the with, with the origin change, it was like, for the story they're telling, it fit. Like, it worked for me. Um, and so did you just never buy into the, the Molded from Clay story? Is that... 
kind of where it was going. I mean, I've never thought that was an interesting origin story ever. Mm-hmm. Like, why? Really? Who? Who came up? I, I know who came up with that. That's a it's a re, it's a rhetorical question. Um, I mean, the person who created her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but like, that's not the. It's not a, a definitive origin story. Like, I think Batman, you can't not have his parents die. You have the last son of Krypton story for Superman. They're mm. such definitive things. Like, William Marston, who came up with Wonder Woman, was just like, yeah, sure, like, here she is, a clay person. Like, where did that come from? That's that's well, it, totally not a definitive thing to me, to, to her character. I feel her origin is a lot more malleable than... There's a clay pun for you, malleable. Um, that <laughs> the other like the the trinity of DC, the the two male characters I feel are far more defined by their origin story, whereas Wonder Woman is more she's more defined by who she is now and who she chooses to be rather than what she is because of what has happened to her. Yeah, it it very much depends on a lot of things because I mean Marston was I mean obviously he's drawing from Greek myth and it's a Pygmalion story. Yep. Uh, essentially, uh, with her being, because the original 1940s origin was Hippolyta just made her out of clay and prayed really hard, and then she just turned into a real girl yep. right there on the pedestal. She's, <laughs> you know, um, Greek mythological Pinocchio, basically. Basically, yeah. I want to be a real woman, and then Wonder Woman, <laughs> and then there she is. Like Hippolyta's the Geppetto of this tale. And... There we go, see? I'm going to make a real girl. <laughs> uh, Is that a Greek uh, or an Italian accent? I'm not sure. It could be both. <laughs> it's so For racist, so it's both. It's like, I'm a Hippolyta. I make a... <laughs> <laughs> the Italian retelling of Wonder Woman. Oh, my God. <laughs> I need that in my life. Maybe maybe <laughs> that's the uh, like pre-Nifty 2 version that's going to bleed through. We're going to get Italian Wonder Woman. Yeah. Have you seen the old? I think it's Italian Spider-Man or Spanish Spider-Man, Mexican Spider-Man, whatever it is from the sixties, and it's Mm -hmm. the worst TV show ever made, but also the best (laughs) thing. There's this reaction GIF that is this guy that looks like a member of Led Zeppelin with this big like curly hair, and he's just shaking his head, freaking out. That is from the sixties Spider-Man. You you will know the the GIF if I showed it to you, Mm -hmm. and it is one of the worst reactions ever. And the acting is just terrible. Like all Spider-Man does is run around kind of with his arms out at like shoulder width, look around Ooh. a bit, and then carry on like running, just with his arms straight out in front of him, like he's about to <laughs> hug somebody. And he flies out of helicopters for some reason, because they couldn't, they couldn't afford... He doesn't swing by webs, he just catches people. He like creates full-on webs to catch people. Oh, I, I, I don't know how we've got off on this tangent of Spider-Man, but if you get a chance, go and check out the... I think it's the 60s. I believe it's either Italian or Spanish. Uh, okay. And it is it's worth every moment of your time. It's one of the worst things that's ever <laughs> happened. I love awful superhero versions exactly. <laughs> from other countries. Yeah. yeah. So good. Anyway, um, yeah, back, go, to Wonder go Wonder. back to Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah, because it also wasn't until the Silver Age that she got the, um, it was the, like, on the beach... You know, uh, I think I don't remember who took over after Marston, but uh, it was like, you know, Hippolyta crafted her from the clay on the beach and then you know, woke up and the gods blessed her with certain gifts like that. That, had, that didn't happen until the Silver Age. Um, and then it, it, it was much more about like Wonder Woman being the, the only child of 
Themyscira or Paradise Island and everything. Yeah, yeah. And her being the curious one, the one who wanted to leave Paradise to go into, quote unquote, man's world and uh, bring the the ideals of this utopian society and the fact that women could do everything, you know, that, you know, men could do or, you know, that kind of stuff and and apply that into the, the real world. Uh, where, you know, she often in those Silver Age comics or even in the 40s, uh, in the Golden Age, she would be telling girls like, you know, you can do this, you can do that. And it didn't always resort to violence. I mean, she, yeah, she can kick ass. But her first priority is always like the um, the peaceful route. Yeah. It's changing them on a psychological level, which makes sense when Marston was a, you know, psychologist and was the uh, inventor of the lie detector. Essentially. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, the so I, the fact that she is comes as an ambassador from Themyscira a lot of the time as well. Like I think they used that in one of the recent um, animated films, and mm-hmm. she the reason she is introduced to Steve Trevor is that she basically is the political ambassador for Themyscira to the rest of the world, and this is the first time they're kind of interacting with the Western world and with the male population as we know it and things like that. So she's kind of got that. She's not just all guns blazing kind of thing. She's She's a more, like you said, kind of more thoughtful and more. She'll go for the peaceful approach rather than, which I think is a, a common thing with a lot of DC characters that is kind of underplayed a lot. Let's not get onto the subject of Man of Steel because that's a whole different podcast, and I will be here all day. But yeah, we could just keep talking anybody, about that. Yeah, anybody who's heard me on the Intercomics podcast knows what I know about Man of Steel. They don't need to hear it again. And. <laughs> I, it, like I said, I can go on for hours, but the fact that Superman, the, like the thing that defines Superman and Wonder Woman for me is that they go for those approaches first. They they can kick anyone's ass almost literally. They are basically completely unparalleled in their combat skills and their superpowers, but they don't. They choose not to kill a lot of the time. I mean, yeah. Wonder Woman obviously has gone through bloodthirsty phases and she has killed people because she is a warrior when it comes down to it. But the fact that her and particularly Superman will go for those, you know, negotiations and choosing to help people in need rather than, you know, punch crime in the face kind of thing. Whereas I feel like a lot of other characters go for the, you know, punch first, ask questions later kind of approach. And and especially with the new 52, they've been doing, they've, they've gone a lot more that route. Oh, absolutely. More, yeah. Pretty much yeah. all of their characters. Yeah. Everyone's a bit more violent, a bit more gung ho. Like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Cause with, uh, cause with Wonder Woman, one of the, the biggest defining moments for her in, in terms of the more modern eras was when she snapped Maxwell Lord's neck. Yes. True. Um, and that was what, and it, it was not so much that the snapping of his neck, uh, it itself it was that it was the last resort like she was the she was the one of the trio who you know she killed because there was literally no other option yeah uh, whereas you know if it had been batman or superman because they have these defined codes of non-killing even though we've seen before that they have you know inadvertently Man, or you know yeah exactly <laughs> Within the comics at the time, prior to Man of Steel. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah. <laughs> yes. They had, you know, let people drop and not save. There's always those, like, little, like, moralistic loopholes or whatever. Whereas Wonder Woman, because she has this, this yes, warrior background, uh, always kind of, again, last resort, 
first to like extend her hand out in peace. So when Maxwell Lord is just kind of like, I'm never going to stop because he's got like Superman under mind control and blah, blah, blah. Uh, when she snaps his neck, it's supposed to be significant because this is the character where you're just like, oh, shit. Like, yeah. It's got to be that bad for Wonder Woman to to think that that's the last option. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's the last option. And and I think the fact that she is a trained warrior kind of mm-hmm. gives her that edge to. She has killed things before. She has taken lives. She's willing to go that far to do what is right for the for her people and for the world and for the universe in some cases. Whereas I feel like Superman and less so with Batman because he is so strict with his no killing policy. Mm. Um she's the one that's willing to take that next step that next step. Like yeah. this guy has to die and I have to be the one to do it. I'm willing to, you know, put that weight on my conscience because I can take it. Because mm. I am, you know, this this goddess of well, the god of war, since we're gonna be talking about the new fifty two. Um yeah. she can she can handle that and she's She's been raised that way, and that kind of defines her in a different way compared to Superman, who has no sort of, you know, military background or anything like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Superman's always got the responsibility of his powers, exactly, and Batman yeah. is just like, you know, I don't, I don't want to make people suffer the way I did, and if I kill them, I'll become like them. Whereas, yeah, Wonder Woman's philosophy is much more, you know, mercy, compassion, and everything tempered. Uh, or you have the fighting skills tempered with mercy and compassion. Mm. So always try to go for the peaceful route first, but she does know where that line is, and she knows that you know if she has to cross it, she will. Yeah. The, the problem has become that people have taken that warrior stance and been like, oh, that's the only defining thing about her. Uh, like the Justice League book, you know, when Jeff Johns was writing it, um, is he still writing it? I don't even know. Okay. Uh, when the New 52 started and, you know, Diana was in the Justice League book, which was their flagship book, I mean, all she was was, I'm going to stab things over and over and over again. Yeah, pretty much. And it was so, like, into the antithesis of what she had really, what she'd always been, you know, you know, for the longest time in comics. Um, and then you have Brian Azzarello and Cliff Chang taking over the solo book. And yes, Diana's a warrior and she, you know, she's she's very action oriented. But I think that in the long run of the 35 issues, they did a really good job of showing, um, I guess, the resistance she has towards not only her, her godhood, but also resorting to violence first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's something she's willing to do, but she's also like, well, I I'd rather, you know, show compassion and mercy first. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fact that Chiang and Azarello's Wonder Woman was so kind of separated from the rest of the New 52 mm-hmm. is what made it so special and so unique. Like I think a lot of the cases with the big two, if we let me briefly spin off to Marvel as well, books like mm-hmm. Hawkeye because it is so different to like the big stuff that's going on all the Avengers books right now, like what Fraction and David Azure were doing with that book, it's mm-hmm. visually different, it's completely structurally different to anything else, and it really kind of stands out, and they kind of start to feel more almost like independent books, like if they were published by Image or something like that. Yeah. And I could totally see Chang and Azarello 
doing a similar sort of thing and it felt like it was the the standout of the from the sort of company towing the company line which it felt like a lot of the other books were doing yeah the house style exactly uh, yeah and yeah because cliff chang's art is just, i mean it's so gorgeous oh, so good i i met him at uh thought bubble uh festival oh, cool. a couple of weeks ago and i got a print of wonder woman signed by him and all that sort of stuff and it oh, is yeah. her as the god of war on this giant horse with the 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 um like the helmet and yeah the helmet and the and the full cloak thing raising her sword on like a pile of skulls and it's <laughs> it's the most badass thing and i was so close to just fanboying out and me like oh my god you're cliff chang like one of my all-time favorite artists i met him and cameron stewart his who is another one of my all-time and he said ribbick as well and we're like oh nice top three in my top five comic artists of all time and i was just like kind of lost my mind a little bit but yeah cliff <laughs> chang is a super nice dude and his work is just incredible incredible stuff yeah. i love the way he kind of particular thing i really like about him is that he outlines his like main characters to make them really bold and kind of stand out against the background and stuff like that i feel like a lot of the really kind of detail heavy stuff um like basically following Jim Lee style, the, the DC House style for New 52, it can all kind of feel a bit overly detailed and murky and stuff like that. Whereas yeah. Chang's really clean, defined lines and really clean, defined characters really help them stand out. And the fact that yeah. Diana herself kind of makes a huge impact on every page, whether she's striking a pose or just talking and stuff, every main character is kind of boldened and and really like powerful looking. Yeah, it's the the thing with Jim Lee's art, like I I do find it it's it's very gorgeous, it's beautiful. Yeah. But it's busy. Absolutely, like, yeah, yeah. There's just so much stuff going on where you're just like, okay, who am I supposed to be paying attention to? Who do you know, what the hell? Yeah. But with uh Cliff Chang when when you're reading Wonder Woman, there's it it's almost like there's a minimalist thing going on in certain panels. Like, he makes sure that the focus is on the character you're supposed to be paying attention to or the action happening in this, like, spread or something like that. Yeah, I think so, I think focus is a really good word to use there. Like like you said, it, um, Jim Lee will draw every single plate of armor on or every single scale on Aquaman's, like, torso. <laughs> Cliff Chang won't necessarily do that, but you'll be looking at what you're supposed to be looking at on that panel or on that splash page. He forces your eye, and that's kind of the story of a, a great storyteller in my opinion if they can yeah. lead your eye across the page through the panels where they want them to where they want you to go and at the pace they want you to read it at then they, they're controlling the medium they're they're doing exactly what they're they're planning to do whereas i find a lot of artists you kind of get is it is it that panel next is it that panel am i supposed to be focusing on batman in the background or is it superman in the mm -hmm. foreground or what's going on is oh he's punching that guy okay that's happened <laughs> whereas cliff chang is like diana is here she's doing this thing then this happens and this happens and then you know orion shows up and blah 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 blah, and it just perfectly leads through and it's got this real kind of natural pacing and natural flow to it that i think really defines good storytelling in art because mm -hmm. because um kind of like i mentioned we were speaking before about jay lee as much as i like his artwork to look at it's gorgeous gorgeous stuff I feel a lot of the time the flow of artists like that doesn't really sort of transcribe from panel to panel and there's not kind of a sense of movement or motion 
whereas Cliff yeah. Kang just leads you through the book, just holds your hand and is just like, this is what you're looking at, this is what's supposed to happen, I'm telling the story. You almost don't need words half the time, and mm-hmm. it's just, just right. It's, I think that's a re- good sign of an amazing comic book artist, like a sequential artist, rather than just a person who draws things very well. Yeah, exactly. And and the thing is, like, every character, I mean, first of all, Diana, the, the redesign of, of Wonder Woman and Diana is probably, like, my top five versions of, of her. Absolutely. Uh, it's just, um, I've, I met, I've mentioned this on a few other podcasts, like, back when we were at Word of the Nerd and everything. Uh, but she looks like what you think an Amazon should look like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not lit. I mean, I get it with the, the, the skinny girls, you know, with the packing the punch and everything. But it's just like this version of Diana looks like someone who not only is blessed with gifts from the gods, but trained her whole frickin' life uh, to be a warrior. And so she's got like those broader shoulders and, you know, she's still feminine. She's got those Beyonce yeah. thighs as well. Oh, my God. It would yeah. just crush a dude's skull. She just looks like a female wrestler. Exactly, and yeah. The, which makes sense because, you know, wrestling was a very Greek tradition. And uh, <laughs> so so I appreciated that thought that went into kind of what her design would be. The the fact that the costume, like the, the eagle is above her breasts so that it's keeping the girls what? in. No cleavage. I know. Oh my <laughs> and, and the fact that they, and I really appreciated about this, that they never overly sexualized her. No, um, no one's. And that is... Yeah a huge thing for female characters in comics, as I'm sure both of us have discussed on previous podcasts with each other and separately as well. Exactly. There, there is such a huge problem with sexualization of female characters in comics. The fact that she just looks like a badass, but also a very beautiful and very toned and fit and in shape and all that sort of stuff. She's an attractive looking woman, but mm-hmm. she's not hypersexualized. She's not pulling weird poses or anything like that. And, She's just standing how a, you know, a person who's trained to fight and she strikes like actual combat poses. Like I, mm-hmm. I know a little bit about I, I'm really into kind of Roman and Greek mythology and stuff like that. And I know a lot. I watch a lot of martial arts things and stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, like there's certain foot placements when you square up to somebody, you don't just stand right in front of them shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. kind of thing. You turn to the side, give the target give your, yourself less of a target and Chang really seems to understand that kind of body language and she's not just being like oh look at me I'm a female character in comics come and buy my comics boys she's just <laughs> like I'm a bad like I can't remember if it's the color of issue one or if it's, it's it might be like issue three or something it's very early on and she's got a fucking enormous battle axe slung over her shoulder and she's wiping blood off her chin and she's like oh, yeah. cuts and scrapes and stuff. That was my phone background for like months and months. That's it's such an and there's like the sun shining just over her shoulder. It's like a fucking amazing shot. And she just so looks much- so badass. And she's but she looks like a powerful woman as well. And you can kind of feel her femininity and also her kind of strength as well. Yeah, there's this weight to everything. Absolutely, like you, yeah. You feel like when she's holding that axe, you're like, I believe that she's holding that axe. Like, it doesn't look like it's floating above her or anything like that. Like, there's just this this presence to Chang's Diana that, you know, for a lot of the books within the New 52 and even some prior to that really never captured. Like, you never believed her as a person. 
Um, whereas the way Chang draws her, and even when you know Tony Atkins and uh, Goran Suzuko would uh, would take over, they would you know essentially ape that style as well, so that you would just you felt like the gravity of the situation, I guess. Um, and, and that's what I appreciated because yeah, Diana stands with confidence. Like she's, you know, every, again, every panel, like you're drawn to her if she's in it, or even if she's not, you're like, where's Diana? What's she doing? <laughs> like, and, and the other characters as well, like the, the, the designs of the gods of the Greek pantheon just blew me away. Cause like you, I, I love Greek mythology, Roman mythology, that kind of stuff. I love reading it. Um, and it it was it would have been so easy for them to like fall back on the old versions of them like the in togas surrounding a pool exactly down. yeah but for them to go the route of let's have them represent what they are you know Apollo the sun god you know looks like the sun when the when the when it comes up in the morning yeah exactly and then is like encased in this kind of like you know uh, black. Uh, shell when it's the evening time, so wherever he is. Um, I, I, Poseidon looks like a giant fish thing. Oh, yeah, Poseidon's thing, where he's just like this big Cthulhu squid creature thing is just fucking mm-hmm. amazing. My personal favourite of that those redesigns is Hades. Oh, my God, He yeah. looks so cool with the, like, melting candles and stuff and just, oh, man, that was so... I'd never even... Occur- I kind of was... Imagining like Hades from Hercules or something like that, like the, the Disney's Hercules, they were going to go for like James Wood style flaming head thing, but like no <laughs> eyes, just melted wax for a face, and then this like creepy mouth and stuff. And oh mm-hmm. man, so good, so good. Yeah, Hermes was probably one of my favorites, just because you know the uh, and the fact that they're all called by their their realm basically. Like he's called messenger for the most part. Yeah. Um, and he looks like a bird. It's just like a duh. Of he's, course, he's he a bird man. Like... And they explained her flight, which mm-hmm. I love. That fuck the original origin of the flight, by the way. Just like <laughs> she just she just thinks it and it happens. Like no, go fuck yourself. Whereas he goes, quick, Diana, you need to use this, and throws a feather and it sticks in a leg, and now she can fly. There's yeah, an actual like... explanation for it, <laughs> and there's a she needs it, so it's an actual like practical use for it as well. Mm-hmm. It's a, and and yeah, like like you said with the with the origin story, like what they do in terms of of taking it and and reimagining it in the way that a good reboot should is is yeah, taking those aspects of it and be like, okay, she's got these godly aspects, she's a demigod, fine. We don't establish any kind of flight yet because there's no reason to have that. Yeah, why would she until, have flight until? Yeah. Ta-da. Yeah, like Hermes throws a feather, and then it's like, oh, of course, she. Okay, we're we're good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. And um, I I remember reading those issues, and it never occurred to me that she couldn't fly. And there was never yeah. at one point where you're like, well, why isn't she flying? Because I always thought Wonder Woman flying just felt a bit unnatural. Like mm-hmm. Batman glides, Superman can fly because he's Superman. Green Lantern can fly because of the ring and stuff, and then Wonder Woman just does for some reason. It always just felt a bit unnatural to me, and it never occurred to me. And then we're like, "Ta-da! Oh, that totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah." And well, then it's like the the flying, and then it's like, "Well, then why does she have the invisible jet?" Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Another thing. <laughs> fuck the invisible jet. <laughs> Basically, I, I'm I'm pretty staunch on my dislike of her origin, original origin. You really are. <laughs> <laughs> fuck the jet. Fuck random flight powers. Fuck clay. <laughs> Screw you! I want I want demigods with Hermes feathers and 
being badassness. There you go. Well, and even talking about the clay bit, because um, so I, I mean, just to to promote myself on my own podcast, um, uh, wrote a, a article about the end of their run and everything because of of how it wrapped up, which I thought was a really amazing ending and just tied everything together and whatnot. Um, the the whole idea of the Amazons has been a huge was the second controversy that came out of oh, Azarellas. Yes, it was. Um, because for for those of you who have been living under a rock and don't know anything about Wonder Woman right now in the New Fifty Two, she uh, not only is the uh, daughter of Zeus and Hippolyta, she the Amazons themselves have been kind of uh, changed in terms of repopulating the island means going out, finding a ship of sailors, having some hanky-panky, and, and then keeping the daughters and discarding the sons to Hephaestus, or Hephaestus, however you want to say it. <laughs> so that came under a lot of scrutiny from people. And I understand it. I get it. Uh, because it does turn the Amazons into pretty much racist. Um, not racist. Rapists. rapists. Yeah. Racist rapists. Um, um <laughs> another wonderful thing to talk about <laughs> but and i get it i understand it and it's a valid argument uh the thing is uh, what i mentioned in my article is that i think that what azarella was really trying to do was talk about kind of this idea of utopia uh and how it's as much a myth as anything else um because you have an island literally called paradise island because uh, Themyscira was only given to them back in the 80s. Yeah, uh, yeah. So for decades, it was just called Paradise Island and this whole idea of the utopia and, and uh, all-female society, all in congruence with um, with Marston's you know idea uh, of, of the future being, oh, women will run the world and everything. It's like, fine, good, whatever. But if you read anything about utopias, they rarely ever turn out good. <laughs> like, yeah, that's the start of basically every dystopian future thing. Like, mm-hmm. we thought, like, think take Bioshock or something like that. We're going to talk about video games. Like, Rapture is this great utopia. Oh, no, it all went crazy and basically becomes an apocalypse. Like, that happens yeah. all the time. Utopias yeah. are, are not, like, realistic, functional things in society. At least not yet. At least until we perhaps evolve past the point of jealousy and greed and things like that but i think we're we're far enough away from that that it's not even a plausible reality at this point exactly and and so i i feel like it was you know azarello being like okay i'm gonna take this idea of utopia and i'm gonna show that you know it's really not about the it's about see i'm trying to collect my thoughts here (laughs) because there's just so much to talk about uh because the whole idea with not just Diana's origin, but it's also making her transition into this god of war, queen of the Amazons, uh, her own identity as Wonder Woman and Diana, all fitting within the context as well of these greater family stories. Um, You know, finding out she's part of this Greek pantheon, uh, discovering that the utopia of of Paradise Island isn't what she thought it was. Um, But then kind of bringing all those aspects together and being like, you know, towards the end where she's just like, sisters, you know, uh, open your hearts, love this child that I'm trying to protect, uh, you know, love our Amazon brothers um, and become a family again, like rebuild the family, basically. 
Yeah. And you have to destroy the utopia in order to rebuild the family, basically. Yeah. I, th- I think the the family um, theme was particularly strong through Chang and Azura's run as well. Whether mm-hmm. it's talking about her and the fact that her conflicts with all of these people like, like the Firstborn and um, uh, Artemis and everybody else, they're like, suddenly this is a, a family matter. This is entirely more personal than... It would have been before if she was just, you know, a construct of clay. And then, of course, you have Zola and the baby and things like that as well. And mm-hmm. suddenly Deanna becomes this kind of maternal figure as well. And that's another aspect of her femininity and her strength as a woman that is kind of overlooked, I feel, a lot of the times that she can be... She has... Compassion is like one of her superpowers, basically. Mm-hmm. And like we were saying, she she tries to go for the kind of the compassionate route before resorting to violence i think that is one of the best this is one of the best examples of her showing her compassion outright towards other people and towards her family members and showing mercy to her family members at times as well and then again when it gets to the point of there's no more mercy she she's willing to take that step but she always goes for forgiveness first basically and the fact that her family now includes that that pantheon of gods kind of makes the whole thing a lot more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And the and the fact that because it it all the thorough line too is that Hera starts off as her her enemy. Yeah. And with with everything that happens with her mother and the and the Amazons and whatnot, and then it's her showing compassion and mercy and forgiveness towards Hera that ends up being kind of a, a saving grace in the end. Like, she, she helps when she gets her godhood back, basically. Um, you know, she has a, a moment where she's like, I'm a god, and it's above me. And Zola, who, you know, we later learn is kind of like uh, harboring a, Athena, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Like, she, she basically talks her into helping again, being like, Oh, so we we did all this for you. We forgave you. We became friends, and now because you have all this godhood, you're above it all. You know, uh, I I love that arc for Hera because it's entirely um, about the fact that she was shown forgiveness in a way that she didn't do before, and that now she has that capacity to 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 have love and forgiveness for others because of what Diana and Zola did for her. Uh, it, it, I don't know, just, it all, it all works for me. Like, especially Diana's last confrontation with the firstborn, um, how Azarello ties it all into these themes of love and submission, like the, the stuff that people tend to have problems with in terms of, um, Marston's original, uh, creation of Diana, the whole, like tying her up and, uh, all the, the bondage oh, stuff. There's plenty of bondage fetishism in there, let's be honest. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, there's bondage fetishism, but there. I always felt like with with Marston as well, like based on his philosophy behind Wonder Woman at times, it was the idea of you know women are often bound and tied by uh, their circumstances. Yeah, by, really. And and yeah, and so when Wonder Woman breaks the chains or gets out of the ropes and stuff like that, uh, she is is breaking off all that stuff that that women have to deal with all the time. So it's that great example, you know, especially from the 40s and and on of, you know, look, girls, you can get you can get uh past this. Like you can break out of those molds. I mean, 
again, it's a bit unrealistic in terms of actual, you know, practicality at the time, but to put that into their head psychologically, I think, was one of the most important things Wonder Woman ever did. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In terms, yeah, of, of shaping women and, and, and how they have thought about themselves. Like, if Wonder Woman can do it, so can I. Um, and I think that Azarella took uh, aspects of that and really tied it into this story and this run where she's, you know, that confrontation with the firstborn, she's basically going along like, Love is about submission. It's like if you don't um, submit to love, you can't possibly, you know, feel all of these other things or warrant love from other people. You won't have mercy or compassion or empathy, sympathy, all this, all these other emotions that stem from love. And because the firstborn doesn't have that, he he will never have full power or control or anything like that. Uh, whereas Diana has been going on her own hero's journey of rediscovering her roots, rediscovering her family, um, and then really figuring it out, like what she, who and what she is. Um, and it all comes to a head with the firstborn and everything. So, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think the firstborn was a really amazing choice for the, like not the, the lead villain, I could guess you could call him that, like the, the main antagonist for that, for that run. Mm-hmm. I remember when he first showed up and he just um explodes out of the ice and just starts tearing dudes in half and I'm like yeah. what the hell is going on? I have no idea who this guy is is am I supposed to recognize this guy? What's going on? I'm like, Did I miss something here? Like what's going on? And all I could think of was um like the video games God of War and he was just like like Kratos from from those games, just literally tearing people in half, covering himself in blood, and just screaming the names of the gods, just Zeus, Athena, and just screaming and tearing people in half and stuff. And then, like you said, he kind of goes on that journey as well. And thanks to Diana, he learns. Well, I mean, not fully, but she brings the concepts of of mercy and love and compassion to him. And the fact that you can kind of make a character that seems to be just entirely rage fueled for so many issues and for for like that's kind of his defining characteristic at first. You can kind of make that guy go on a on a journey of his own as well is is pretty impressive, I think. And yeah, and I, I like the fact that she doesn't kill him either. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It would have been so easy for them to end the the story with her killing the firstborn. But instead, it's, you know, like, I'll show you love, tough love. And she throws him back into a chasm to think about what he's done for, like, another, you know, few millennia. Yeah. Um, which I, I feel like is the stronger part of the story, where it's just, like, she she could easily just ram a sword through him. Because apparently these gods are easy to kill, you know, if you get if you get the right shot in, um, as we see with, with Ares. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it would have... I think thematically, if she had killed the firstborn, it would have destroyed a lot of what Azarello and Chang were building. Um, so I'm glad that they didn't go for the easy route. <laughs> and and what I really love, like at the end, uh, is when Athena really shows up, and she's all, "Yeah, guess what? Zeke is is actually Zeus. Woo! Didn't see that coming. <laughs> Did the Z so not like, give it away? Like <laughs> you're not paying attention to all the letters." Exactly. Well, and I love Strife because Strife is probably one of my my oh, other favorite. Strife redesigns. is what an amazing, what an amazing redesign. That's just it's such a great look. Like just everything about her, you go like, "Yep, she's trouble." <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
I would, she made me think of the uh, like doll's head in Sid's bedroom in Toy Story 1. That's oh, attached yeah, to the spider yeah. legs, and it's just got the creepily mm. shaved head. I'm like, oh yeah. my god, that's such an intimidating look. It just, just. But she's, and she's so sexy too. Like on top of it, oh, you're yeah. like, damn girl. <laughs> she's working it. She is. She knows, that, that she knows what she's doing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, because my favorite panel in that last issue is when Zeke is put on the throne and all the lightning and everything, and there's just strife down in the bottom. He's like, I knew it! <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. This is my favorite panel of all time. And I tweeted that out, and Brian Azarello actually retweeted it. So I was really happy about that. Nice. <laughs> um, but so when we find out that Athena was actually... Um, you know, not, uh, she wasn't Zola, but she was like in inhabiting Zola. So that when she got pregnant with baby Zeus, essentially like the reversal of Athena's birth, where she basically popped out of, uh, Zeus's head, um, had a splitting headache, uh, literally. And, uh, Jesus Christ. I'm just saying, <laughs> look, if you, people can't appreciate my God humor, <laughs> This is Greek humor 101, people. Come on. Um, but so it's the reversal of the uh, the virgin birth of Athena, essentially. Uh, and uh, so Athena's about ready to, to basically throw Zola's body off of a cliff so that she can, you know, be herself, I guess. And I love the fact that Diana, for the first time in the entire run, purposefully submits to a god. Yeah, yeah. And it's because uh, the the whole theme of like love and submission had been like playing throughout the whole run there because there are instances where uh, Diana is forced into submission in terms of like uh, you know Hades ha- uh, marrying Hades but then uh, denying submission to him when she's supposed to like uh, I guess she she has the rope around her neck or whatever. Um, you remember this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, she's in, she's going to marry hell and everything. And then they're like, do you submit? She's like, oh, no, fuck that. I do not submit. To I wish her response was, what? No, fuck that. That would have been fantastic. It would have been a great panel. It's like you just see like F, like a uh, uh, asterisk, asterisk. Just a splash page of just boop, that. Yeah, exactly. I would have accepted that. Uh, but yeah, so she, you know, she gets out of uh, instances where she's, forced into submission and then she play acts submission with uh, Artemis when she needs to use her to, uh, to find Zola again or to find uh, Apollo, I think, and whatnot. Uh, so when she bows down to Athena and pleads for Zola's life, it's the first time ever in the entire run that she's gone like, no, no, I submit to you. Like, and if you really want to think about how they've been naming everyone, all the gods, like Athena would just be wisdom. Yeah. So yeah, she's submitting really. to wisdom. Ah, yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, here's what I've come up with with extensively thinking about this run. <laughs> but it, it's my favorite thing, and I don't know if it, that was the intention or, or whatnot, but that's just what struck me, is that of all the gods, she submits to a scene of, you know, uh, out, of, out of them and, and pleads with her for mercy, compassion, and love because she has grown to love Zola and Zeke, you know, in, in her way. Uh, and so the fact that Athena considers it and then she's just this owl sitting by the, the baby and Zola's okay, you're just like, that's awesome. <laughs> like, I love this. Exactly, yeah, totally. 
So, but then, uh, I mean, do you have a, do you have any other thoughts about this? Because I think we want to get into the, um, the, our, uh, the, the issue that will not be named. Ah, uh, 36. <laughs> yeah, the issue that shall not be named. Yeah, um, one of my favorite moments was um, with the, the bracelets. And, uh, oh, yeah. I, I was like, again, something I've never particularly liked about the character is just like, she just deflects bullets with her bracelets just arbitrarily. <laughs> and she was like, oh, you want to see the real power of a god? And she just turns out they've been restraining her power and she just becomes the ultimate badass and just mm-hmm. unleashes the god of war by taking these bracelets off. Like, oh my god, they've thought of everything. They've explained her <laughs> flight, they've explained her bracelets, they've explained why she's such a badass. She's now a demigod. Like, oh my god, this is the Wonder Woman I've always wanted and I didn't even know it. And and the fact that she's all like neon colored when oh she goes like god. full god of war. Basically like <laughs> Super Saiyan Wonder Woman. Just like, yes, I need this in my life. Where have you been? This is amazing. That's like one of my absolute favorite moments of that run. Just like, I had no idea that was coming. And mm-hmm. there's there's like, to my knowledge, I haven't gone and really read like the issues leading up to it or anything like that. But to my knowledge, there's no kind of hint of like, oh, there's a more to these bracelets than meet the eye. And then she mm-hmm. just goes, no, well, I'll take these off. And like, what the fuck? Yeah. It just kind of blew. I remember how much that blew my mind at the time. Well, it's the whole, like, yeah, reveal that those were bracelets. The, the bracers were given to her by Artemis. And so going up against her that first time, you know, she takes them off and she's like, oh, it's on. And so it's like, oh, Artemis gave them to her. So, of course, now that they're off, like, she can, like, totally, like, slam her down and, like. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and even just at the end when they, because again, like what I talked about before, like she's she's always fighting against her demigod ness when she finds out about it. Like she's again, it's the it's the idea of her identity as a god, as a hero, as a person, all kind of in conflict throughout the you know most of the run. And it isn't until those last couple of issues, and especially in the final issue when she sees the um, the minotaur that she saved. Or showed mercy to. Oh, she yeah, was a, yeah. Yeah, when she she sees him and she's like, oh, my God, you know, you know, now I understand really what I'm about, who I am. And she makes that kind of like last statement. She's like, I am the daughter of Zeus and Hippolyta. I am an Amazon. I'm Wonder Woman. I'm the god of war and everything. And she's all neoned out. Like she's going to like, you know, you know, take some names and, and everything with the firstborn. But then she lets that go. She's like, but I'm going to do this as myself because I'm all of these things. And I don't need, like, the added extra power boost of being a demigod to take you down. Uh, And I love that. It's just like, I could do this with all this power, but guess what? Just me on my own? I'm going to take you down anyway. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. It's like, yay, themes! Uh (laughs) It's almost like somebody's been thinking this through. Oh my god, what the hell? Who <laughs> would have thunk it? No one ever does that anymore. Um, but I've, I've seen a lot of like really good articles coming out like in terms of criticisms of the run. Ones that I respect entirely and, and understand where they're coming from. Because the New 52 origin is not for everybody. Not everyone likes it or... How dare um, they? I know. Those, like, those people go, are wrong. You go find them, Jack, and you take them down. I will do. I'll take off my bracelets. Don't think I won't. <laughs> I'm actually wearing a silver bracelet right now, so... Are I'm, you? I'm not, oh not saying I'm a demigod. <laughs> so you have to get a second one so you can just do, like, the cross-bracers thing exactly. and take a picture. Oh, that'd be amazing. 
I'm wearing a watch on one and a silver bracelet on the other, so I could kind of do it. I think it'll count. Yeah. You know, guys' watches are usually like thicker bands anyway, so. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, Wonder Woman! I'll do my little spin uh, and... <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, because... And I I love all the articles that have been coming out, even the ones that are critiquing it, because as much as I love this run, uh, I also love the previous runs, and I respect all the the criticisms that are well thought out. Like, not the ones that are like, blah, 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 this isn't, you know, this isn't what Marston wanted, blah, 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 because they all say that. Uh, burr, 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 that burr. is the voice of the internet, let's be honest. <laughs> That's true. Burr, 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 is just like Reddit, basically. Like, Bargo, Fargo, um, and you can quote me on that. Uh, so, uh, but I like all those articles, and I appreciate them because it is it shows that what Azarello and Chang did was basically spark a fire in people about Wonder Woman in terms of how she's written, who the audience is, how she's depicted, and who the Amazons are. And I think that that's a great conversation to keep having, um, especially as we go into the uh, the movie universe and and what we'll get to that soon but what's going to eventually be happening with her. Uh, I think that's a really great conversation to, to be having in terms of the comics as well. Yeah, definitely. I think starting conversations like that is why, maybe not why, but it's a really important thing for a lot of creators and for a lot of runs and things like that, like mentioned the the running themes and stuff like that. The fact mm-hmm. that Azarello has planned all this stuff out and is clearly doing things on purpose rather than just kind of winging it like I know some writers have done in the past um, it's starting conversations like that I think, I think that's the kind of thing that really fires up creators like Anzarello he's, he's quite like a, a thoughtful like he's tackled a lot of psychological and interesting themes in his in his previous work I mean his Lex Luthor book is one of my all time favourite like oh, so good. analysis of a DC hero slash villain slash who knows what he is at that point um Mm -hmm. but yeah i think i think coming up with creating discussions like that is why a lot of these writers do what they do like that's a really important part and bringing up tough subjects and all that sort of stuff is is an important part of any sort of creative process yeah and and i think that it's it's also good with such an iconic character as well arguably the definitive female character in all of comics like, Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, if you just uh, if you were to ask people, like you know, name a female, female superhero. Yeah, go. name a female superhero. Wonder Woman more than likely is the first one. Easily nine out of ten. Easily yeah. nine out of ten people would say Wonder Woman. And that tenth person, fuck that tenth person. Like, <laughs> who else is even close? Like anybody from uh, Marvel. I mean, and when that Captain Marvel movie comes out, mm-hmm. then suddenly Carol Danvers will be on the tips of everybody's tongues but until then wonder woman is the definitive like female character in comics i think yeah she's the most visible the most iconic you know she's i mean she's we're coming up on the 75th anniversary uh what in uh what two years yeah two years i think yeah so it's like she's so damn important to not only dc's trinity but just to at least three generations of of women uh, who have been introduced to her in certain ways, whether through the comics, through the television show, through cartoons. Um, there's there's always been a version of her in 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 media that someone could point to and go like, that's my Wonder Woman, or that's how I was introduced to Wonder Woman. Uh, and and that's important, and and it it makes 
how she's been kind of thrown to the wayside in a lot of ways, really head scratching. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like, you have this prime real estate right here. You have this one, you have this one character who is so recognizable, so iconic. Um, and you, you keep saying you don't know what to do with her. It's like, what the hell? Like, how many versions of Superman and Batman have we had? Yeah, we've had. Uh, soon we're going to have, I think it's nine Batman movies in total, live action Batman movies. There is yeah. not one live action Wonder Woman movie in the history of the character that has made yeah. it to screen. That is insane. How <laughs> is that a thing that is possible? <laughs> like, you just want to go up to Hollywood and shake it like it's a person and be like, what is wrong with you? Exactly. There's been more live-action versions of The Flash than there have been a one. Even if we're talking about TV at this point, obviously Linda Carter. Then you had mm-hmm. Adrian Palicki, who nearly made it to scream, but not quite, and who is yeah. now amazing on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, she's a great little, Mockingbird. She's a fantastic Bobby Morse. But anyway, before we spin off onto that, should we start talking yeah. about The Finches yeah. and so. Issue 36? Okay, so for those again who don't know, um, the Think new creative lucky. team. That's, that's yeah. for those who don't know. <laughs> <laughs> those unlike us who bought the issue and regretted it immediately. Um, issue thirty-six of Wonder Woman, the the one immediately following the end of Azrael and Chang's run, was the the new creative team of Meredith Finch uh, as the writer, sort of. And David Finch as the artist, uh, quote unquote. <laughs> Basically, both of those are in air quotes. Like yeah. The writer and the artist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I could put some emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so they took over, and I mean, this had been announced like probably about a year ago, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Something like that, because, I mean, there's always, I I don't know how far out ahead they plan these things out, but so we've known that they were going to take over for a while, and immediately, because David Finch, the the last thing he had done for DC was the, um, uh, what is it, Forever which was late, because reasons. Um, (laughs) Because basically, if you stick a huge event and stick with one artist, it's almost always going to be late. Yeah. Every big event from the big two, from Marvel and DC, that has had one artist, you pretty much mm-hmm. get late issues. You've had that with Civil War over at Marvel. You've had it with this over at DC. So many other things as well. And a lot of times you just get other artists taking over halfway through. And just mm-hmm. like some of the most iconic, important events in the history of those companies, you define them with one artist and then you realize, like, oh, yeah, some dude totally took over halfway through and you forget about it. It's crazy. Well, yeah, with all the, the gaps in between. And, and the fact is that Forever Evil, which is supposed to be some kind of like game-changing moment or whatever, the fact that it was the last issue was so late and all the other books were operating post-Forever uh, Evil, yeah. you're just like, what? What? Ha- what? I don't know what's happening anymore. So there was a bit of a disconnect, I want to say, for uh, quite a while with the books. But uh, the the one thing about David Finch's uh, art is that everybody looks like a moody, petulant teenager. Yep, I think this... everybody looks too young. Um, yeah. Particularly in this in in thirty six, like mm-hmm. uh, there are points on the cover and uh, particularly and when the Justice League are all gathered round 
like a computer that cyborgs operating i can't remember this is like in the watchtower or whatever um and she looks about 18 yeah if that and you get this you go from this like we were saying this like broad-shouldered strong powerful figure of a woman woman mm-hmm. being the phrase there yeah. She's Wonder Woman. She she looks. She's got maternal instincts. She's a protector. She's, you know, mature enough. She has wisdom now, like you were saying. And then suddenly she looks like Wonder Girl, not the character Wonder Girl. Thank God. But yeah. <laughs> but she suddenly looks like twenty years younger. I was imagining Diana in her thirties at this point, like the the typical. You know, Bruce Wayne is perpetually like thirty two, thirty three, like peak of physical condition kind of thing. Yeah. She looked like a woman, like in her thirties. Now she looks like I, I think I described her on the Intercomics podcast as looking like an eighteen year old, like who's made herself look pretty by looking at sex dolls and thinks that's what men find sexy. Like it's got yeah, it's... perpetually like parted lips, which is kind of well, part of the sexualization thing, which I'm sure we'll get into. And these like gigantic, almost anime style blue eyes that don't even look vaguely realistic. The aforementioned boob covering eagle has like slid down a little bit so there's a bit of hint yeah. of to cleavage there all of a sudden Look at that. <laughs> and uh suddenly the the like contours of the suit and the outfit that like um the ribbed like section across the torso doesn't mm-hmm. like contour from going from kind of the the lower stomach area up to the breast and then to the the metal plate across the front it's just like super skin tight and then boobs and then cleavage, and you're like, oh, okay, we're back to welcome back comic artists. Yeah, exactly. Like, guess what? We took all the originality out of this and just made it look like everything else. Hey, you remember when that suit actually looked practical? Like, you can actually fight in it and stuff? Nah, we just want gratuitous boobage. Screw it. Exactly. We just want to make it look more like uh, Jim Lee's. Because that was the whole thing, is that after Azarello and Chang, they were like, the Finches were basically talking about, like, oh, we're going to tie her more in with, like, the New 52 and, and show, like, how her being on the Justice League is effect, you know, also affects her being the God of War and Queen of the Amazons, blah, blah, blah. It's just, when I heard that, or when I read it, at least, it's just like, but the fact that she was separate of them made the book better. Absolutely. That's exactly what like, I was saying earlier. The reason that book was so interesting to me because it read so differently and looked so different to everything else happening in the New 52. Yeah. Like, so completely different. Like it wasn't following the house style, and then now it's just back and sucked into the house style and just feels lost amidst a bunch of other books that basically look exactly the same. Exactly. I mean, and like you were saying with her eyes, like, it's... There's this thing where it's just like, you don't feel like she's thinking anything. Yeah. Like... Like I said, it's, just... it's sex doll face. Yeah, she's, it's she's blank, blank stares. Yeah. At least with Chang's version, you there was just always this feeling that you understood where Diana's head was at. Like you could see it in her eyes, practically what she was feeling. She would be squinting um, or frowning or something, and she's now she's just kind of blank, gulping mouth and creepy blank eyes as well. It's just like yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the fact is, like the the opening bit is a shower scene, of course. Yeah, and and I get it, like, with the opening in terms of Azrael and Chang's, yeah, Diana's in the nude sleeping when Zola, like, comes across her. But it's treated with far more maturity. Uh, and, and I guess just, it, it's not, again, it's not overly sexual. 
it's it's basically like, okay, she sleeps in the nude, but there's never a sense where they're trying to expose her the whole time, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas this opening thing with with the whole idea of, like, what water does and the metaphor and everything, which, you know, fine, whatever, it's all leading up to a shower scene. Like, <laughs> that's what it is. I almost feel like, like the washing of the blood and stuff is basically them figuratively and pretty much literally washing away her being the god of war and basically everything that Chang and Azarello established. Like yeah, washing away the blood is 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 often used in you know, in fiction to signify somebody cleansing themselves and stuff like that and it's quite a mm-hmm. quite a kind of obvious analogy. But I remember reading the interview with Meredith and David Finch and them saying like yeah we're totally going to honor she's the god of war and stuff like that and you know we're honoring everything that Brian and Cliff established and things like that and this the shower scene feels to me like washing themselves clean of that and here's something and now for something completely different in the words of Monty (laughs) Python like she there's no mention of her being the god of war apart from that giant fucking exposition page that just says oh by the way this is what i've been doing for the last 3 years that exposition page killed me like that it was just like the biggest i mean i understand exposition dumps some they have to happen in in books all the time like they happen on television movies whatever but this is like it's not even trying to be subtle it's just Here's everything that's happened, and I'm so, like, I'm torn between all these things, and life is hard, and I don't know what to do. Aquaman, help me. (laughs) Yeah, that um, kind of tone of voice is exactly the kind of thing I imagine coming out of this Wonder Woman's mouth. Like, oh, God, jeez. Just being really... You read it in that tone. Whiny and moany and, like, yeah. It's like, let's see, here we go. Like, a year ago, I had one responsibility, the Justice League. Now I feel like I'm being pulled in a thousand different directions. You need to add a few like more that's... likes in there. Like, now I feel like I'm being pulled in, like, a thousand <laughs> different directions. My mother is, like, a clay statue, and I'm, like, queen of the Amazons until, like, I can find a way to, like, restore her. But before I can do that, I need to, like, convince my sisters, like, not to kill, like, our brothers. Now, like, the firstborn is no longer a threat. and like i'm still a member of the justice league like clark's only just finished overcoming doomsday and like i'm trying to get used to the idea that i have like an enormous new family of self-indulgent gods and demigods and like now i'm the god of war just like thinking about that and what it means like terrifies me and like i can't seem to figure out how to like give everyone the time and like attention they deserve just like when i think i'm starting to get like things under control in like one area of my life like another falls apart <laughs> and by the way folks who have not read that issue that is one panel yeah what well, <laughs> sam just spent panel. about hmm, 40 50 seconds maybe a minute reading is mm-hmm. one panel on that page it is ridiculous and wordy and just verbose to the point of being boring yeah and and i know that you know scott snyder has kind of you know greg capullo has kind of said that scott snyder is too wordy at times for him he is but this this puts i think scott snyder to shame there's, there's a difference between being wordy and being verbose like brian michael bendis is one of my favorite comic book creators 
and he is renowned for just filling a page with dialogue boxes. But they will often, almost always, especially in the case of things like Ultimate Spider-Man, which I consider his kind of magnum opus, that it gives really amazing character moments and character development and character interaction. It will even just be like two floating heads, kind of like what you've got here with Aquaman and Wonder Woman. You'll just get them talking to each other, but it will define them as characters and you'll pick up on their characteristics and their little ticks and their little things and blah, blah, blah. It's never just an information dump. And as much as I've been critical of Scott Snyder at times, like particularly recently, I couldn't stand zero year, for example. Um, his writing is not clunky like this is. His writing yeah. serves purpose. He's verbose because he's that kind of writer. That's that serves the story he's telling and and like Batman's um, inner monologue and stuff like that works mm-hmm. in that sense. This is just her just listing information at Aquaman for no apparent reason. Yeah, and it's supposed to justify because prior to this scene, she basically just lashed out at Swamp Thing. For no reason. Like, literally no reason. Yeah, she there's no... Like, oh, apparently I heard that somebody may have mentioned this thing you might have done once, somehow, maybe. So I'm mm. going to kick you in the face, tear you in half, and just go insane. Completely the opposite of what we were just saying about 20 minutes ago, about how <clears> she goes for the compassionate route first. She just goes all, I guess, boots blazing, kicks him in the <laughs> face, slices him in half with a fucking fist and stuff. Instead yeah. of going like, hey... Alec, how's it going? <laughs> what's what's up, man? What what's yeah. are you alright? I've heard I've heard you've been dealing with some shit recently. You know, about the whole kind of rot thing and mm-hmm. dealing with loads of crazy stuff. Instead yeah, she just goes Kaboom, I'm the god of war, motherfucker, I'm gonna tear you in half. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. Well and it feels like like everything that happens in here, like there's no real it doesn't feel like proper transitions into scenes. No, no it's, just, like, it's just a panel after panel, page after page, for seemingly yeah. no reason. There, there's just no, uh, there's no flow to the story, and, and that's problematic because you're transitioning into this new team, and they're not doing anything to make this appealing at all. I mean, all it's appealing to are the, you know, 12 to 45 demographic of males. Hey, who, hey, uh, hey. <laughs> I'm I fit squarely mid- in the middle of that demographic. Thank well. Yes, you are. Slightly towards the twelve side of things. Let's be honest. I'm only twenty-four, <laughs> but um, but it's. I mean, it's really. I mean, Finch's art is very. It's it's all cheesecake. Absolutely, um, yeah. And there, there's there. It's all fan service to men. Whereas with Chang, it it, it never felt fan service. Nope. Nope. It, it just felt like here's Diana. Enjoy everybody. <laughs> um, but then even even just like Meredith's, Meredith's writing, first of all, this woman has only written three issues of, of any comic books, and they've not been of the same run of comic books, uh, two of which were for Xenoscope, if that gives you any indication as to where she started. When I read that, I was like, that explains everything. Mm-hmm. This is Wonder Woman written by somebody who is from Xenoscope. Yeah. And I've been pretty vocal about my distaste for Xenoscope. Even to people from the company to their face at Comic-Con, <laughs> they've been trying to get me to read their book, and I'm like, you are talking to the wrong person here, my friend. He's like, oh, no, are, you, are you not into it? like, yeah, I see that issue of Robin Hood, and you can shove that up your ass. I don't care. 
<laughs> and this book is basically a Xenoscope book. There's no, seemingly no plot. Things just happen because they happen. And there's a sexy lady jumping around, punching people in the face for some reason. And then it finishes. You're like, oh, that was a comic, apparently. Well, and, and the thing is, like, with the, the, I think the latest interview I saw with, with Meredith Finch, uh, I think it was on the Mary Sue, but she was saying that, she, you know, in, in preparation, you know, who had she read in terms of starting to write Wonder Woman? And she was like, oh, I just kind of took my cues from, uh, from Azzarello, uh, from Brian and Cliff. And so basically indicating she had never read any Wonder Woman prior to the New 52 origin, which I guess fine, but you would at least like her to have more of an understanding of the character in terms of where other writers have gone with her, um, stuff that she could glean from them or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, there was an interview, I say I remember, it was last week, um, with with Warren Ellis uh, on a podcast called uh, Distraction Pieces, which is done by a a spoken word guy here in England uh, called Scroobius Pip and he interviewed Warren Ellis and he's talking about his Stormwatch and his, his first one which I picked up the other day and I highly recommend it to anybody who's in the mood for some classic DC stuff. Warren Ellis's Stormwatch is goddamn wonderful. Anyway, he was talking about how when he was started off in the early 90s or mid, like around 93, 94, something like that uh, and he was given, you know, a new book by DC or somebody like that, you'd have to do your research. And he was like, right, I've never read this character before. I've barely even heard of them. Could you send some stuff to me, please? Because I don't really know what I'm doing. So they had to scan literally thousands of pages of comics and like send it by FedEx over to him <laughs> in England because obviously he's still based here in, in, in Essex in England. Mm-hmm. And he said... Every time you start a new character, you need to do your research, especially if they're an established character, especially if they're an iconic character. Like You need to get to the bottom of that character. You need to know the defining traits and then put your own spin on it. What I love about Azarello and Chang's run is that even though they fundamentally changed so much about her, like we said, the themes of compassion and the themes of strength and femininity and everything like that, still run true mm-hmm. whereas this just feels like this could be any character this doesn't feel like a wonder woman book like i kind of said this just feels like a xenoscope book and in this day and age compared to what warren ellis was talking about there is no excuse for not reading comics you can literally download almost every comic ever made by the two big companies onto your phone in seconds yeah. also she would get free copies of that because she works for dc and her yeah. and her husband has worked for DC for decades. He's been in the industry for like 25 years now, David Finch. Mm-hmm. He must have a back catalogue of everything and basically could just call up Jim Lee or Dan DiDio or whoever and say, hey guys, could you send over some Wonder Woman's or could I get a download code for that on Comixology, please, or something like that. He yeah. would have it in seconds. There's no excuse not to do your research in this day and age. Like If, yeah, and- if this was 25 years ago, fair enough. That is a lot more difficult but in 2014 you have everything at your fingertips there's no excuse exactly and and the fact that she like she's basically like openly admitting that like yeah i didn't read a lot of it it's like i don't care who you are coming in fresh on a character like wonder woman not the best strategy yeah uh, and especially if all you're basing it on is one run that is essentially 
redefining the character in a different way. And yeah, I get you're going to, you know, kind of be building off of it, but every indication says that they did not build off anything that, that uh, Brian and Cliff did because just other than this exposition dump, you know, with, with that information, we clearly see Hippolyta as a statue again, even though at the end of Azarella and Chang's run, she was made more of like a Gollum character. Yeah. Like we didn't see any, like anything about her going back to stone form and not being, you know, reanimated. Cause that would have been interesting to see if she was still around, but then they just go back with, no, no, it's like she never was reanimated for some reason. And now she's been melted. <laughs> it's like, did you guys pay attention to anything that happened? In the, did you talk to Cliff and Brian? I have a feeling they have never spoken. Yeah. <laughs> I have a very, very strong indication that Meredith Finch has never met Brian Azzarello. Well, mm. she may have done like years ago at some DC thing and David was happened to be there and Brian happened to be there and blah, 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 blah. But she's never gone out of her way to contact Brian Azzarello. I have a feeling. And she's kind of yeah. flicked through the last like three issues like so how does this all end okay let's go from there and then she just shits the bed and doesn't care about anything like there's no yeah. she's not the god of war in this at all she's it's she's such just a she's just back to being normal wonder woman as if the entire new 52 didn't happen this could easily be pre new 52 wonder woman mm-hmm. easily it doesn't make a difference you got that panel of exposition it it would just yeah it would just be like uh if you just inserted it somewhere in the middle of a Justice League arc or something. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it doesn't feel like her book, even though it's got her name on it and, you know, she happens to be there. The fact that in, you know, practically every, you know, every other scene, there's Cyborg or Aquaman or Swamp Thing or Superman and Batman and, and stuff like that. So it's like, you know what, I get people guesting in your books every once in a while, but... Again, the the great thing about Azarello and Chang's run is that there was there was no guesting from anybody from the Justice League. I mean, Orion was the only other character, him and Highfather, that showed up. And they're not even in the Justice League. They're the new gods. Exactly. And I think a really interesting thing about this, I, I was just looking through this before we started uh, recording. This issue doesn't pass the Bechdel test. And it's a Wonder Woman book. Yeah. Like, Chang and Azarello's puts the Bechdel test to shame. There is, yeah. like, half the book is female characters talking to each other about their own problems or personal problems with other characters who are also female. And mm-hmm. for those of you who don't know, if you listen to the Sam show, I assume you know what the Bechdel test is, because, let's be real, just in case, it's a test for fiction that if two female characters interact with each other, that interaction is always based around one of the other characters who is a male. And mm-hmm. it's basically a, th- a thing to kind of prove that writers can't write female characters without having to necessitate to introducing male characters into the equation. Chang and Azarello did not give a fuck, and they just had, like, the main, like, strife. For example, one of the main antagonists, and then you had Zola, and you had... Wonder Woman herself, Diana, and a bunch of other female characters just being characters in a story. Mm-hmm. No mention of the Bechdel test. I actually went back and did read a few of the issues as well in preparation for this, just to make sure I'm not talking out of my ass here. 
Like, Jack, we've also done the research, and uh, you're being... Turns uh, out in Wonder Woman 25, <laughs> that doesn't pass the Bechdel test, Mr. Chambers. I'm like, well, fuck you, because basically every other issue does. But this one doesn't at all. There's, like, a couple of moments where she's talking to a female character, and you get yeah. a couple of moments um, uh, with her... And then with, all the... On, on par- the scene on Paradise Island is the closest thing to that and then they just start talking about male flesh and all sorts of other stuff and you're like ah oh, so close so close yeah the um, the scene in the when the amazons are basically arguing over you know what what's gone on in the in the past even uh, just recently in the past with the fighting against the gods in order to save uh, Zeke uh you know and and basically bringing their brothers into the fold as well, which apparently now is uh, an issue that we're going to get into, which, I mean, that's fine. I mean, there's no there's no problem with making that an issue to address because, yeah, it would be an adjustment period. Yep. Uh, hey, we had all these brothers who we kind of gave to the god of uh, smithing and whatnot, and now we're kind of welcoming them back in, but sort of not. We're concerned. Uh, that's great, but it's just approached from such a terrible angle where it, the art itself also looks so grotesque uh, yeah. in a way that is not, cause there's like beautiful grotesque, but this is just like grotesque, grotesque um, to me at least. Uh, the, I don't know. The, I, I don't know. What did you think about like when the Amazons were talking? Oh yeah. That, that's exactly the scene I was talking about when like, this is about to pass the Bechtel test. Thank God for that. No, wait a minute. They're just talking crap, and yeah, <laughs> like you said there's this weird like grotesqueness to the whole thing. Like in in a lot of horror comics, that can work really really well. Like you said, there's kind of a beautiful grotesqueness to a lot of things, mm-hmm. and this just kind of feels um, almost like caricatures of things. Yeah. Nobody feels like an actual character. They just kind of feel like a an archetype or an example of that kind of character. Which is a problem in a lot of comics. Like uh, I'm not just singling this out. There's especially in kind of superhero comics in particular, and like people trying to establish new superheroes. It's, but they're basically going to be Batman light or Superman light or whatever. Mm-hmm. You can't escape those kind of archetypes and those examples. But this just feels like nobody is fleshed out. Nobody has any interesting things to say or do, and they all just kind of stand there being like mannequins of themselves. Yeah, cuz Dessa's there and I like Dessa in the in in the previous run and everything cuz she had like a she had these moments where she was clearly Hippolyta's right-hand woman uh was there for uh Diana's birth uh all this kind of stuff and she's just like she, there's no again again there's no gravity to her there's no weight to what she's saying and then there's these new people who I, I I don't think Aleka was in there at all. You'd think that she would be there. And then there's this old broad. Like, I don't even know who this is, but she's talking about uh, Hippolyta, I guess, because there's this weird, like, almost flashbacky like, thing. I, I don't know if that was supposed to be Diana uh, looking at the baby or if that was supposed to be Hippolyta. Uh, yeah, because... I'm still not sure either. And all the women kind of look the same. Yeah, that's a and, that's a real big problem. Apart from obviously crazy old hag. <laughs> yeah, because that doesn't make any sense to me. It's like they're not supposed to really age all that much. I mean, Diana's the only you know really 
I mean, if you go back to the old origin, the only one who grew up on the island. But since we know that there have been children who have grown up, I don't know if there should be someone that old on on Themyscira. Um, so I don't know if that's something that they're going to talk about. But from the introduction of her, we don't really get a name. We don't know who the hell she is other than she was probably there from the beginning with Hippolyta, which, again, doesn't make sense because Hippolyta hadn't aged all that much either. So... It's like, I don't know what's going on here, and no one's making a good enough case for any of the transitions, any of the maybe flashbacks. I, I don't know what's happening, and that confuses and angers me, and, yep. and I don't care for that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I feel like it, it kind of falls into all the obvious tropes as well, like flashbacks and all that sort of stuff, and, oh no, a cliffhanger ending and all that sort of stuff, like... There's no originality to this issue at all, it feels like to me. Yeah. It's just retreading crap we've seen so many times before and wasn't particularly good the first time around. The dialogue <laughs> is clunky. There's lots of weird moments with the artwork where there's some... I mean, before I go on this big rant, let's talk about the cover for a second as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the full-on, like, ass and boobs shot that is the classic female like comic book character pose that Mm -hmm. i thought we'd kind of given up like 20 years ago like thanks rob liefeld but yeah i've had enough thanks we don't need that anymore and no the the spine breaking ass and boob shot is back apparently Mm -hmm. and oh she's carrying a sword and shield that means she's a badass Oh, but you've given her cleavage again. And the shorts are even shorter than they were before, apparently. She's wearing the Daisy Dukes of her own costume. Seriously, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Like, Chang's covered the ass. Like, you could wear those in public. Like, they were, were like, just to the top of the thigh kind of thing, which kind of makes sense. It gives Mm -hmm. enough freedom for movement, but it also retains your dignity. It has practicality. Exactly. This is just half an ass cheek hanging out, (laughs) being all... Overly sexualized and unnecessary, and it's like, ah, oh, we're back to that, guys, really. And I don't even like even just a look on her face. Like again, it doesn't make me think that she's going to kick my ass. It just makes me think like she's, you know, thinking about her boyfriend or something. Like she's, you know, she's got like this weird, pensive, slightly dazed look to her. I don't know. It's just, it's all kinds of wrong. Compared, I mean, comparatively, like if you're going from Chang's Wonder Woman to this, like, you really want to lead with this cover? I mean, of all the decisions, you think that they could have found, like, a better pose or something or gone back to Finch and be like, hey, maybe we want to do a different cover. <laughs> like, like, I was talking about the covers, her with the battle axe and her riding the horse and being the god of oh, war yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And, like, iconic shots of her being just looking awesome and looking like a badass woman. And Mm -hmm. this is just like basically masturbation material for 12-year-old boys at this point. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite covers is the, um, what is it? She's, uh, when they go to Hephaestus and she's she's bringing the hammer down on the anvil. Yes, that's an awesome shot. That's a great one. I mean, again, it's like, it's it's showing the character... She's action oriented, but you believe the action. You believe like uh, whatever, however her face looks. Like you understand what the emotion is. Like in this shot, like based on everything I'm seeing of Diana, 
I have no idea what she's thinking. I don't even know if she's thinking. <laughs> like, it's just, it's it's all the stuff that you, uh, it's like they did a checklist of all the things that they needed to have in a cover. It's like, blood, check. Costume, check. Wind, blown hair, check. Lasso, you know, all this Boobs, kind of stuff. Boobs, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Check. But there's no, I don't know, there's just no sincerity like to it, I guess. Chang had a real weight to his to his work like when she's doing an action it looks like she's doing something she's moving she's swinging that hammer she's about to mm-hmm. she's just brought that battle axe down on somebody's head and beaten the life out of them like when she's riding that horse she's commanding an army or something like that this is mm-hmm. just generic sexy pose yeah like there is there is no other reason there is no reason for you to stand like that like i was saying the whole thing about combat stance and body language and stuff like that She's got her legs together and like um, almost crossing over like right foot in front of left foot and her left knee is bent more than her right knee. That is a stance of weakness. And if somebody hit her in that position, like with a with a force, she would tumble to the ground. Whereas Chang stands feet shoulder width apart, left foot in front of right foot, squaring up with a battle axe swung behind her shoulder which, again, is another stance of power because you can just bring that straight over your shoulder and, and fight with people. She's holding the sword out at, like, waist height for some reason and the mm-hmm. shield behind her not actually protecting anything. Like, <laughs> this is just an arbitrary pose that they just went like, yeah, that looks pretty. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. It's got no practicality. Is it? I think practicality is a real kind of defining difference in the, the look of Diana between these two, like two series Chang's Diana looked like she could kick some ass and move around in her costume without falling out of it and stuff like that and Finch's just looks like she's just stood there to be eye candy essentially and that's so demeaning to her as a character and as a woman it's just Mm -hmm. it's just so unfortunate yeah, it's it's we've we've gone backwards now. We've regressed yeah, in terms absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah. This we're back in the 90s. I thought Azarello and Chang's run was like one of the most progressive things going on at, in in the new 52 by far. It escaped the house style. It kind of gotten out of that rut that a lot of readers have kind of got annoyed with DC about and like there's not enough strong female characters. It's all it's all Batman all the time and stuff like that. Azarello mm-hmm. and Chang really made Wonder Woman stand out literally on the page and across their entire kind of catalogue of books as well. Yeah. And now she's just back to being generic, sexy lady on the cover of a comic. It, this could be a xenoscope. Just recolor that costume and take out the stars and the lasso. That's a fucking <laughs> xenoscope character. Well, and it's it's essentially... Um, have, have you ever heard of uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick's Sexy Lamp? I have, theory? yes. Yeah. So for those who don't know what the sexy lamp theory is, like Kelly Sue DeConnick coined this, where it's replace any female character with a sexy lamp. And if the story does not change uh, because you've you've replaced her, then she has no agency in this book. Exactly. She's she's not a part of the story at all. And this just feels like you could replace Diana with a sexy lamp and nothing's different. Like, it's just a sexy lamp. I kind (laughs) of want to see that cover with a sexy lamp now. Put that one from the Christmas story on, then be like, "Here you go. It's essentially the same story." Exactly. <laughs> oh, sexy lamps having a shower. Ooh, <laughs> look at that sexy lamp shower. 
Sexy Lamp is going after a swamp thing there. Exactly. My God. <laughs> so suffice it to say, neither Jack nor I liked this issue. Surprise, surprise. I know. And uh, I know that we've talked about this before, but you're not going to continue uh, reading this one, are you? No, no. And um, people who know me from my podcast will know I, I have a fairly strict rule of three for new series. Like pretty much every image book that catches my eye, which at this point is a lot of them because they're churn- yeah. churning them out every week, it seems. I will give it three issues. And if it has not absolutely captivated me by that point, I am dropping it. It is gone. I can't afford to be keeping up with every single series. And there have been a couple of books where I'm just like, no, I'm done. One issue, two issues, fuck this shit. I'm breaking my rule. I'm, <laughs> usually I give everything a chance. Like, fair enough. I wasn't huge on issue one, but it was okay. Issue two, oh, it's picking up a little bit. That's interesting. Issue three, a big like game-changing thing will happen, and I'm in, and that's great. That's happened to me quite a lot, and that's kind of why I've established this rule for myself and my reading habits. This, mm-hmm. fuck this, I'm done. <laughs> I've now, I'm suddenly reading Catwoman. We're on issue two of a new, basically a new run of Catwoman, and it's awesome. Selena Kyle is now my favourite DC female character, which is something weird because I'm not usually a huge fan of hers, particularly mm-hmm. what they've done in the new 52, talking of over, over sexualization of characters. Holy yeah. shit, DC, with that opening page. Anyway, it's crazy how like these two series, Catwoman and Wonder Woman, have just completely swapped for me. Gone from over-sexualization and plotless nonsense on Catwoman to now having exactly that on Wonder Woman and this really kind of character-driven, interesting take, like kind of unique take on a character that has now gone from Wonder Woman over to Catwoman. And it's really, really strange. And now I've literally just, you know, told... Uh, Lee, who I get my comics from, um, yeah, can I drop Wonder Woman and swap it to Catwoman, please? <laughs> like, <laughs> I've literally just swapped, taken my three ninety nine and just put it over on that book instead. Yeah, and 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 I'm on the same level with you. Like I, I don't feel like I'm going to miss anything if I stop reading Wonder Woman now, exactly. and yeah. and that's what and what I think more pisses me off about this is that it you know the Azrael Chang run ends and this starts. Right around the t- the same time that Wonder Woman is is gonna start being part of the DC cinematic universe. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, that's the thing because because uh, we've had the announcement from DC and Warner Brothers or more Warner, Warner Brothers than DC that we will be getting a solo Wonder Woman movie in 2017, and uh, it was recently announced as well that the director of this movie is going to be Michelle McLaren who a lot of people will know from Breaking Bad and, uh, was it? Uh, Game, Game of, Thrones of Thrones and Walking Dead. Walking Dead, yeah. X-Files yeah. Uh, as well. So she's a genre director, which is great. Um, the problem I'm having in terms of, you know, because they're going to probably use the New 52 origin. They've confirmed that they are, yeah. Yeah, because uh, uh, one of the producers said something about her being the daughter of Zeus. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, and and that's fine. You can use it. There are some people who come will be like against that, and whatever. You know, I just want a good story. And thankfully, McLaren is going to be on the development side of it too, uh, so she will hopefully do right by the character. But the problem is that with the comics now having this team uh, on Wonder Woman, presumably around the same time the movie is going to be coming out. I mean, I don't know if. I fucking hope this creative team doesn't stick around for another 36 issues. 
Yeah, because because if, if we're talking 2017, that's three years away. Azarello yeah. and Chang have done 35 issues. That's pretty much three years worth. Mm-hmm. Like, really, is this going to hold up for another 35 issues? I fucking hope not. I know exactly. It's it's one of those cases where I'm really kind of rooting for the sales to drop significantly, <laughs> which is also terrible because it's Wonder Woman. Exactly. Like. I shouldn't want this, but at the same time, it's like, I really want them to understand that this creative team was the exact wrong choice to take over this book after such a stellar run from Azarello and Chang. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I support more women writers and artists and everything, but not if it's going to be, you know, turning this stuff out. Yeah. Like, this was nepotism. I mean, that's all it was. Um, I don't care who you are. You don't. You really do not give such an iconic character to someone who has only had three issues under her belt, ever. To put it in like, perspective, I've nearly written as many comics as Meredith Finch has. Yeah. Like, bet- so between, you, um, between you and me, Sam, we've probably written more comic scripts than she has. And she's writing Wonder Woman. Yeah. How is that? Possible. What? How is that a thing? How is that loud? And it's like, were there no other women writers that you could have gotten? For, I mean, there had to have been tons of them chomping at the bit to get onto Wonder Woman. Exactly. Because, like we said, she's the definitive character in the entire industry for women. Exactly. Like, as much as I love Gail Simone's run on Batgirl recently, that was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. G. Willow Wilson is doing amazing stuff over at Marvel with Miss Marvel. And you mentioned Kelly Sue DeConnick, arguably one of, arguably the breakout writer of the last couple of years she's been doing amazing stuff with carol danvers and avengers assemble and her own stuff uh, over at image as well yeah pretty deadly is like one of my favorite new comics to have come out of image exactly exactly and she's got bitch planet coming up as well which looks phenomenal um (laughs) and uh and then you just kind of give this such an important character such a like a literal feminist icon to a woman who's basically she's been around the industry for years granted but she has no experience kind of writing this this level and this this, this kind of character and if we're going to go back to Michelle McLaren as well and you mentioned I totally support female writers and the the fact that we're kind of there's a big push at the moment to kind of diversify the creators in particularly in this industry because mm-hmm. There's such a kind of old guard of, unfortunately, the you know twenty to fifty year old, if not a little bit older, white guys who are basically running this entire industry, um, mm-hmm. whether that's the big two or other other industry other publishers as well. Yeah. But giving a female character to a woman just because she's a woman is is kind of more patronising than giving it to a male writer, like. The fact that Brian Azzarello has written a far more feminine, in, in like a positive way, and a far more like feminist, also in a positive yeah. way, character than Meredith Finch, is kind of insane. That you don't, you shouldn't just give a female character to a, a female creator just because. In the same way that you, you know, male characters shouldn't just be written by women, uh, by men. Sorry, like that, <laughs> that that is bordering on like patronizing it's ridiculous it's just kind of demeaning and and pointless and the fact that 
that was kind of the talking point from Michelle McLaren directing Wonder Woman. Like, oh, it's a woman doing Wonder Woman, so it'll be good. Like, no, that is not why it will be good. It will be good because, or it has the potential to be good at least, because she has experience in in things kind of related to that. Like you said, genre stuff. Like, I've gone back and watched some of those episodes of Breaking Bad she directed and Breaking Bad is such a visually important and visually striking show like it kind of lives and dies on a lot of its directorial choices her her episodes are fantastic like she's got a real kind of knack for just nailing the kind of shots and stuff that are really subtle but also help to tell the greater story of the episode and then the greater arc that's going on with Walter White and Jesse Pinkman and everybody else going on and the fact that she can use those kind of subtle cues as well, especially in things like Game of Thrones as well, and there's some you have to use like really iconic shots and particular very specific things to convey certain things in that world because there's so much going on. You need to kind of cram as much information as you can in every episode and every single shot and every scene. The fact that she can yep. do that kind of thing gives me hope. And I don't care if she's male or female. Like, if she was Michael McLaren, I don't care. If she suddenly changes her gender, if she is transgender right now, I don't know for sure. Like, that, that, that wouldn't make a difference to me. The fact that she is a good director is what's important. But the talking point for everyone seems to have been, it's because she's a woman. And that, I, that's kind of, that kind of ruins the whole thing for me. It's not because she's a woman, it's because she's a good director and she's a woman. Like, good creators are good creators, whether they're male or female. No, and, and I agree. And, and when they were talking about who was going to be the director for Wonder Woman before Michelle McLaren was uh, was announced, because she was on a lot of people's lists. Yes, she was, yeah. Um, but she was also on there with, um, with pretty much every female director that people knew of, which was, like, Catherine Bigelow and... Jesus, what was it? Lexi Alexander, who directed uh, Punisher Warzone, uh, those kinds of things. So it was just like people were trying to like snag, yeah, just try to pull every female director they could find out of thin air, like who had maybe any kind of experience with an action movie or something like that. And then I saw some lists where they, yeah, they they utilized female and male directors. And what it all came down to was like, can they direct action? And it's like, well, that's part of it. It's like you guys are forgetting that, you know. Uh, what is it? Kenneth Branagh directed Thor. Yeah. And Thor was a Shakespearean alien mythology kind of thing. And and he was the right guy for that. Yeah. At the time. I think that's really what Marvel have done spectacularly is gotten these directors that have never really done this kind of genre fiction before. Like Kenneth mm-hmm. Branagh, like you said, he's, he's a Shakespearean guy. You know Kenneth Branagh because of his adaptations of of classic novels and fiction and things like that. And he has a very particular style and that totally worked. They took a huge chance of giving Kenneth Branagh Thor. That's crazy. Yeah. If you'd have told me like 15 years ago, Oh, by the way, Kenneth Branagh was going to direct the first live action Thor movie. I'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Why? Who made that decision? Are you insane? You shut up and get out. <laughs> and then Shane Black doing Iron Man three, like this mm-hmm. guy who's renowned for these kind of slower, darker kind of dramas and things like that and yeah, I, more noir for, kind of thing. for the record i love iron man 3 i know that's quite controversial for some people but i like a lot too yeah um and then the russo brothers two mm-hmm. of the dudes from community 
of all shows, <laughs> doing a Captain America movie. If you'd have told me a year ago that was a thing, like, what? The guys from Community are going to do a Captain America movie, and, it, exactly. and it's going to be phenomenally good. Like, one of the best films of the year. But no, exactly. that's bullshit. I don't believe you at all. Not even just a good superhero movie, but just a good movie. Yeah, <laughs> like the the plot and the structure and the pacing of that film is essentially flawless. Mm-hmm. And the direction in that and the visual style and the choices that they make, they make some really brave, interesting shots and ideas and where they take those characters. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I'm, I'm waiting for DC to do that. Because I'm really, really worried that they're kind of going to get sucked into this kind of house style thing that they've done with the new 52, but for yeah. their cinematic universe. And of course, who is the equivalent of the Jim Lee in the uh, cinematic universe? Mr. Zack Snyder, who I can't mm. stand as a director. I don't, <laughs> I don't like him as a man, and I don't like him as a director. Let's not mm-hmm. get me ranting on him. But all right. <laughs> <laughs> I basically have to stop myself from ranting every five minutes, otherwise I go on huge tangents. <laughs> if you hadn't already noticed, I think. Like Jack, calm down. Yeah, find your zen. <laughs> we're, we're bonding over our rage once again, Sam. We haven't done this in a couple of years, and rage bonding. We, we bring out the rage in each other. I, I for, I've forgotten how how fun this can be. Just you and I just ranting about stuff. <laughs> Takes you back to the old DC Confidential days. Oh uh, yes, days gone by. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm glad that they're giving other people the chance to direct these other... I was really worried that it's going to be like, yeah, Zack Snyder's kind of doing the whole thing. And to my understanding, yeah. he is kind of producing everything and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But I really, really hope that they kind of let Michelle McLaren give her a lot more freedom than I feel like they do in a lot of their, their comic book series. Give her some, it... some opportunities to use her own visual flair and her own ideas. And like you said... They've given her a kind of a producing role as well and a development role. So that- and I think that's that's important because it, it allows her to because uh, we don't know who's writing it yet. Um, hopefully, it won't be from a Goyer outline or something like that. Right, but Bef- yeah, <laughs> that's another person you mustn't let me rant on is David S. Fucking Goyer. Like, as much as go. I, I'm not a big fan of Zack Snyder. I quite like a couple of his films. Like they're fine, they look good and stuff. David Goya can go die in a hole. I can't <laughs> stand Goya and basically any, anything he's ever done in the last like fifteen years, he's just awful. A terrible. He's a horrible person as well. Yeah, especially the things that he said about female comic book characters uh, in the most recent past, like uh, She-Hulk being like a, a porn star, basically. Like, she was. We, she was invented to just basically to be the person to have sex with the Hulk. Yeah. And um, I can't remember who came, I think it was Len Wein came out and said, like, um, she's his cousin, dude. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking? You don't know what you're talking about. You're not a comic book guy. You can go fuck yourself. Like, have, have you ever read a comic? Seriously, like, go and read the like the, the She-Hulk series that's about to get cancelled. And mm-hmm. it's basically a, a like a law and order kind of thing. It's like legal drama type stuff. And she yeah. happens to be a giant green badass. <laughs> and no one cares about exactly. that part. <laughs> She's not just fucking everyone in sight, funnily enough. It's <laughs> not how female characters work, sorry. And I said, I won't rant about it, but here I am. All right, Jack, just zen, yep. zen, find the happy place. Find the happy place. <laughs> in through the nose, out through the mouth. There we go. 
but yeah, but that's the thing about Michelle McLaren is if she's working with whoever ends up writing it, then she can have more input. And we, you know, we've seen with uh, the episodes that she's had of Game of Thrones and even even Walking Dead, like the most recent one she did was uh, A, which was the start of actually the end of season four. Um, I mean, that was an intense episode. And she's just good at finding, you know, where those moments need to be, how to utilize this kind of like otherworldly part of the universe. Like zombies are the least threatening thing about Walking Dead, but she still manages to make them threatening, uh, as well as the cannibalistic people of Terminus, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, Walking Dead, the same thing. She finds the action, but she also finds the dramatic points that you need to have for the overarching story. Uh, Game of Thrones, same thing. I mean, she's worked within all of these genres that give her, I think, just a better advantage than someone like Catherine Bigelow, who I'm not saying she isn't a competent director. She obviously won the Academy Award for Hurt Locker. Um, what was the end of Watch was just as critically acclaimed. Yeah, end of but, Watch is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and but she works in this specific genre. Uh, she's very action oriented. Uh, but not necessarily uh, fantasy or uh, science fiction or anything like that. And you need someone with Michelle McLaren's background in all these types of genres, I think, to really effectively get a, a good Wonder Woman movie because she's not just one genre. She's not just fantasy. She's not just science fiction. She's not just action. She's all of them. <laughs> like, And you need someone who can handle all of those genres who has a lot of experience with them and practice and whatnot to, to really understand how to direct something in, in that way and to get like good actors for that too. Cause we honestly don't know how Gal Gadot's going to be uh, as Wonder Woman yet. Yeah. She's amazingly untested as an actress. Yeah. Which she's only be, been in, she's kind of the Meredith Finch of the, the acting world. Like she's done oh, a, 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 I mean, I hopefully she does a better job, but She's basically done nothing. People are like, oh yeah, she's that one who's in Fast and Furious 15 for like two seconds. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that, that's the only okay. thing I really knew. <laughs> I haven't seen those films, but sure. So I looked up the clip of her in it, and she's in it for a total of about two and a half minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's nearly a two-hour film. So I'm like, okay, anything else? And people are like, no, nah, I haven't seen her in anything else. But she's going to be a great Wonder Woman. Like, really? <laughs> She's like, completely untested. Like, I have faith that she's, you know, going to do her best and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not one of these people like, oh, she's too slim. She's not butch enough to be playing this big badass character or whatever. Or she's not. Yeah. She's too flat chested or whatever. Ridiculous fucking arguments people are coming up with. Yeah. I'm. I don't give a shit what she looks like. Like anybody can wear that costume and, and work it and make it look like Wonder Woman. But. It's the acting chops I'm worried about. It's, it's the dramatic side of things. Like with like with the comics, you need to believe that she is this character. Exactly. And that's, that's all going to come from the first time we hear. And it's not even, I, I, I don't even want to say like a, a couple of pieces of dialogue. I need to see the whole thing. Because we also don't know how involved she's going to be with Superman v. Batman Law and Order of Justice. Um, it, you know, or Dawn of Justice, if you want the actual title, whatever. Because uh, we we seriously don't know how much she's going to be in it. Um, I am glad that her movie is coming out before the, you know, I guess Justice League Part One, 
Um, and we also, and we don't know if it's going to be an origin story or if it's going to pick up from, are, are we going backwards, forwards? The whole lineup is really suspect. I mean, I'm glad that they're thinking ahead, but I don't know what they're thinking. Yeah, well, she's definitely appearing in Law and Order Justice or whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah. So I'm hoping we won't get an origin story and they'll just kind of hint at it. But mm-hmm. I also said, oh, there's no way they'll do the Batman origin story again. And then news a couple of weeks ago, confirmation that they're filming the death of the Wayne parents scene for Batman vs. Superman. Like, really? <laughs> ben Affleck is in his, like, he's like 100 years old at this point. And you're talking about something. I know it's the defining thing for that character. But anybody who's going to go and see that movie either already knows the story or is sat next to somebody who has already told them that story on the walk or the drive to the theater. Yeah, like, if you don't know Batman's origin story by now, or like it's it's kind of like you you can't spit without hitting someone who knows it at this point. Exactly. Like it, even it, if you don't know, you haven't read Batman Year One and you haven't seen the uh, "Yes, Father, I will become a Bat" moment or anything like that. That's mm-hmm. fine. You don't have to read the comics. He's had, like I said, I think it's nine films, including Batman vs Superman. He will have the title of nine films mm-hmm. from Batman 66 through to the Tim Burton stuff to fucking Joel Schumacher to Christopher Nolan. You should know Batman by now. There's no excuse. Exactly. You should have seen, you should have seen at least two, if not three of those films. And they always go back to the Wayne's death. It's always there. And then, and, and then we've got Gotham on screen at the moment, which is one big origin story for Batman. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping, oh, at least it's not going to be an origin story for Batman. They're going to focus on Jim Gordon. Nope. The entire thing is about the origin of the Waynes. And you're never going to see Batman in that show because that's not what that yeah. show is. So it's a big well, tease Bruce for Wayne nothing already... we're never going to see. He's he's practically Batman already yeah, at the he's age of ten, He's 10-year-old Batman. He's going around <laughs> fighting Alfred and jumping off things and being like, no, Jim, that's not how it works around here. Like David, David, whatever that Zazu's, whatever his name is, he's mm-hmm. basically a little Batman. And but then all the sorry, I'm I'm ranting again. But all the villains are like twenty years older than him. Yeah, they're all going to be in their fifties collecting social security yeah, the, by the time. Yeah, he's by the time, like I said, he hits physical peak in his like early thirties. Literally twenty years later, Harvey Dent will be forty something. <laughs> like thinking about going into retirement and becoming like you know a judge or something like that or office by becoming two-faced and I think that's a... <laughs> let's let's quickly spin off into gotham because i started off doing reviews for gotham um on the website that i run uh for the podcast intercomicspodcast.com shameless plug dot com, <laughs> <laughs> <Dot> com. <laughs> um that's an old in joke there for everyone who knows us from our one of the nerd days. Um, if you followed us that far. <laughs> I hope so. I hope there's like three listeners that have just been waiting for this moment of reunion. Like, oh, finally, a crossover at last. And Chambers and Cross together again. <laughs> exactly. We we invented, um, what was it, gay bashing Mormon Superman back in the day. Do you, <laughs> do you remember that? Chambers and, Chambers and that. Cross present gay bashing Mormon Superman when uh, Orson Scott Card was going to be doing it. Anyway, remember it. Tweet it back to us. Exactly. Um, yeah, Gotham is basically 
setting up things that it can't possibly pay off. And I don't quite understand what they're trying to do with that show. I started off reviewing it and was giving it like 7 out of 10, 6.5 out of 10, 7 out of 10 again. Like it's <laughs> it's decent, it's fine, it looks good, the acting is good from most of the main, like Donald Logue and Ben McKenzie, both really solid guys. Um, I like Sean Pertwee as well. He's He's an interesting choice for Alfred. He's actually been a really great Alfred yeah. in the long run. Yeah, exactly. And then any time even the slightest hint of a possible Batman character, they just go nuts. And there's okay. no subtlety at all. Like, they they could have just had Harvey Dent show up and just the name Harvey Dent says Two-Face. Everybody knows that's Two-Face's alter ego. The second mm-hmm. you see him, he's flipping a coin. And I'm like, fuck you, Gotham. And then later on, he has a freak out, and everybody's like, "Oh, that Harvey Dent, he's got a dark side to him." Like, fuck you, Gotham. Fuck well, you. then the a couple of scenes before where he was, you know, like putting out his master plan to Jim, and he's like half in darkness, half in light. It's like, oh, did you see what they really did there? Lighting. Well, and it's like Edward Nigma too, where he's got the the mug with the question mark on it. Uh. Oh, Edward and your riddles is basically every time he shows up being like, hey, guys, riddle me this. Like, yeah. Fuck off, Edward. You're really annoying. Like, well, you won't be saying that in 20 years when I'm fighting the dude in a bat suit for some reason. <laughs> like, whatever. Exactly. Crazy Ed over there. Oh, so the only interesting and- story has been the penguin. And it's just because they've kind of embraced the ridiculousness of yeah. it. Yeah, He is the most interesting character by far. Like Rob, yeah. Robin Lord Taylor's performance in that show is why I watched that show. Mm-hmm. Right? And his like climb to through the, the underground and the underbelly of Gotham to become the crime lord that we know as the Penguin is such an interesting mm-hmm. journey that hasn't been explored that often in the, in the comics. Um, I cited um, Penguin, Pain and Prejudice, which was a fantastic miniseries maybe like 18 months ago, um, that kind of told a similar sort of story. And they're clearly drawing from that for inspiration for his performance. Um, but then you're going to get him be the like crime boss, and you've got Falcone and Fish Mooney and stuff like that as well, I guess. But then mm-hmm. you're not going to get a payoff for any of these other characters. For if, yeah. if this runs for like four or five seasons, and I'm probably being generous at this point... Very. <laughs> Like, we're going to get Edward Nigma showing up every couple of episodes going, hey, guys, I've got a riddle for you. And they just go, fuck off, Edward. You're really annoying. And, oh, what's Selena Kyle's nickname? Oh, it's Cat. It's fuck, like, uh... fuck you, Gotham. Have you not heard of the word subtlety? Really? <laughs> like, she's already wearing kind of like the Darwin oh, cook redesign. She's got the um, Anne Hathaway-style goggles that turn into ears thing for literally no reason. Yeah. <laughs> they call her cat for no reason. She wears those then, goggles for no reason. Poison Ivy, who is Ivy Pepper. Fuck you, uh, Gotham. Because Pamela Isley just would have been too on the nose, exactly. I guess. I... Oh, that's just <laughs> too obvious. We'll have to literally call her Ivy. Yeah, no uh, one will know. <laughs> at least she's the right bloody age. Yeah. Well, and yeah, that's the thing. It's like they're losing ground on any kind of uh, actual friendships that Bruce was supposed to have. Like they did introduce Tommy Elliot, but he's already a, an asshole. Like there's no, there's no like transition of the creepy Tommy Elliot, you know, that was friends with with Bruce. Exactly. 
um, or the fact that him and Harvey are supposed to be around the same age. Yep. Um, you know, and, and you can do variations where one's a little older than the other. That's fine. But the fact that Harvey is in his, he's not even in his 20s. He's got to be in his early 30s at this point. Yeah, he must be like 27, 28 at the absolute youngest. Yeah, and at, at the oldest, maybe 31 to 32, yeah. I would Yeah, I'd put I would him in that say. range, yeah. So yeah, I mean he's all. I mean this is a the whole point of of uh, the relationship between Harvey and Bruce, at least in the comics. I mean yeah, Nolan changed it around in the uh, in the movies as well, but like in the cartoon and everything, which was one of the best origin stories for Two Face in Batman the Animated Series. Like we knew Harvey Dent and Bruce Wayne were friends. We knew about his psychosis to a degree, and then when Bruce fails to save him. It's the one of the biggest tragedies after losing his parents. Exactly. Uh, yeah, he couldn't save Harvey, even though he, it's like he couldn't save him from himself. Uh, the poison, the 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 acid is just kind of reflecting the interior now, and it's always been like one of those things where Bruce constantly tries to appeal to Harvey, not Two Face. He always and, calls him Harvey. Exactly. Even even in the back cowl when he basically doesn't use anybody's name and he's just like don't talk about that detective and stuff like that mm-hmm. he calls him Harvey to his face and, exactly. and that gets a reaction from Two-Face basically every time like Harvey's dead Batman and he's like starts <laughs> freaking out and stuff that's the oh man the animated series is just the best yeah we need to, mm. we need to do an episode on the animated Batman the animated series by the way Oh my god! Um, yeah. Basically, do a whole episode on like the Diniverse and spin off into the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. oh, those shows are so good. And we t- okay. we talked about doing a Young Justice podcast at some point. We did, Cause yeah, because you haven't I, seen it. I still haven't seen it, and you're a big proponent of it, and have been for as long as I've known you, basically. Yeah, so. since I basically started working for Word of the Nerd, I was like, Young Justice is the greatest thing ever. We were on a DC podcast, and basically all you guys would talk about for the last like 20 minutes would be Young Justice. Mm-hmm. And then it would just be like, see you later, everybody. I'm like, bye, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> just chip in at the end. Jack went away for a little bit. He zoned out while we were talking. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I I would love to do a, a Batman. Because, you know, cause, um, I have Batman Beyond as well. Like, oh, uh, all Beyond, that. yes, I love Beyond. Because uh, if, if anything warranted a movie or an animated movie, like an, an, like in the, in the vein of the DC animated universe movies, God, I wish they would do a Batman Beyond one. Like, I mean, you've got <laughs> Return of the Joker is fantastic. Oh, yeah, it definitely like, Return is. of the Joker and Mask of the Phantasm are probably the two best Batman movies. So good, amazingly uh, good, and we could just go on about the DC animated movies. Yeah, for... yeah, I, I feel like we should probably wrap up soon. We've been going for like two hours now. But... Yeah, we have. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, we'll keep it short. It'll be an hour, and then you and I get back into the swing of things. And it's like, exactly. it's, like it's like we never left. Um, five hours later, it, cut to exactly. Maybe yeah, we stop. <laughs> but um, before we leave off the topic of Batman Beyond and things like that, and then wrap this mm-hmm. thing up. I was really, really, really hoping that was going to be the next stage in the Nolan verse, mm-hmm. and that basically Bruce would fake his death, and then he would see somebody going around the streets of Gotham calling themselves Batman, and had somehow stumbled into his lair and found his suits and stuff, and he would come mm-hmm. back, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt was secretly Terry McGinnis, but he'd gone into like witness protection or something like that. <laughs> 
And instead of the whole, oh, why don't you use your real name? Robin. Ugh, gross. I hate that line. But if it was like, I, why don't you use your real name, Terry? I'd have been like, oh my God, it's Batman Beyond. And the, the fact that we're never going to get payoff for that final shot, which is my favourite three seconds of that entire film, <laughs> is that final shot. The, I mean, he's called The Dark Knight Rises. And he's he rises at the end. He's rising right at the end there. He goes up on the little plinth thing. Oh, is that what they meant? Oh, my God, Jack. Exactly. That's kind of like, oh, it all makes sense. They're doing a next movie with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And they're like, nope, it's Ben Affleck. <laughs> like, what? But, but, but he was, he did the thing. He set it all up. The next thing is, is, is a Robin film or a, really or a Batman Beyond thing. or a Nightwing or something. Do something. Yeah. You called him Robin for fuck's sake. Do something with that. And they're like, nope, no payoff. Not going to happen. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt would have been such a good Dick Grayson or such a good Terry McGuinness. Yeah, that's ah. what I was kind of hoping for. I mean, I accepted the Robin line just because as a fangirl, I was just like, well, it's probably the best I'm going to get at this point. We know how much um, Nolan and Christian Bale hate Robin. So it's like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, so when they when they said Robin, but I was really just going for when she said, Oh, why don't you use your real name? When he said, like, that's not my real name, I was like, oh, please, Dick Grayson, Dick Grayson. Oh, if he'd have said Richard, and I'd been like, oh, oh my God. Yes. Like, well, I'd been like, that would why don't you use your, name, use your first name, Richard? Like, ah, everyone calls me Dick, and I've never been a big fan of it. I'd have been like, I had oh, lost, my God, that would have, I would have lost my mind. Instead of just Robin, and he just goes, uh, and just makes like a little, <laughs> like a little grunt noise. <laughs> that was Joseph Gordon Levitt acknowledging that there was supposed to be a joke there and there wasn't. He was just like, yeah. ugh. Yep. And his name is John Blake. Uh, oh. Dick's middle name is John. Like, If he was rich and, and Blake was like a, a fake name they came up with when his parents died and he went into witness protection because the Flying Graysons were killed. I'm like, yeah, <gasps> it all yeah. makes sense. And he can't use the name Batman because we all know Batman died. So he comes back as a mysterious hero called Nightwing. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm ready for a Nightwing film. Dick Grayson <laughs> is my all-time favorite comic book character. Like all, as all I'm, as I'm, has been established, I am a huge fan of Dick. I love Dick. Yes, you are. I'm, you the, are big, I'm the biggest Dick lover going. <laughs> I don't know, Jack. I think I might uh, match you on that Dick love. So. <laughs> are you talking about Dick Grayson there, Sam? Be honest. Yeah, I'll be sure. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you sure? Totally. Is there anything you'd like to confess? <laughs> I love the Dick. What can I say? <laughs> Uh, but I mean, that's one of the things that I, what I am looking forward to in terms of the fact that we have an older Batman is that there is more of the potential now for a Nightwing to show up in the DC like movie universe. And there's a lot of rumors going around that Nightwing is going to show up as well. Yeah, because if not in the, as a cameo, because there was rumors of a cameo for Dick Grayson in the uh, the Batman Superman movie because everyone in the DC universe has been cam- you know, rumored to cameo. <laughs> there was an interview with the guy playing Cyborg a couple of weeks uh-huh. ago, and he was like, oh, yeah, I finished filming in June. And he's like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, I'm in it for like 10 seconds. I didn't even meet Zack Snyder or Ben Affleck or anybody. But, Shit. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, you're getting your own movie eventually for some reason. Um uh, yeah, so if if the rumor ends up being true that you know, we see maybe like a glimpse of Dick Grayson or something like that, 
you know, he's going to be older, which means he's either on the cusp of becoming Nightwing or already is Nightwing. So by the time the Batman solo movie comes around, which we all know is happening, even though they didn't put it in their, like, lineup, we, we do know that there's going to be another Batman solo movie. Like, more than likely, I mean, I would hope they would make good on this, but again, Warner Brothers, DC, uh, you have the potential to not only have Nightwing, but another Robin, because there were rumors of Jenna Malone they've, maybe they've, be Carrie yeah, Kelly. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's, she's Carrie Kelly, let's be real here. Like, There's a lot of rumors going around, it looks pretty sure that she's going to play Carrie Kelly. And if they're going the Dark Knight Return thing... Dick Grayson doesn't show up much in that, but he does show up in Dark Knight Strikes again. When Which it, I really hope that they don't do that. When it all gets fucking crazy, and he gets well, that, thrown into a pit of lava, like Lord of the Rings style, for some reason. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that's the thing, because I know we were going to try and wrap this up, but I wanted to ask you this question. Because I, I don't mind them basing stuff off of the Dark Knight uh, Returns. It's it's a, it's a iconic book. It's a definitive book of the '80s and, and everything. the The problem I'm having here is that they are taking so much of the aesthetics from the book and not really paying attention to what the actual story was about. Because, um, like, yeah, fine, Carrie Kelly, whatever, uh, great female Robin, um, but it's an it's essentially an Elseworlds tale. And they're trying to cash in on this Batman versus Superman thing without any of the actual, you know, again, gravity of the story. Like, why it was so important, you know, or um, upsetting to people that they were going against each other. Um, I, I, I mean, have you been thinking about this at all? Or I, I don't know if I'm just reaching at straws to complain about things. Hell no, you're not. This has been my number one complaint about the whole thing is that the the reason that fight is so good and is so important is that Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne are at first reluctant allies in the Justice League. They come from two very different upbringings and two very different like ideological standpoints, ethical standpoints. They both kind of stand on the we don't kill anybody. They're heroes essentially, but they do they have very different methods and they're very different socially and like I said they had very different upbringings, which is a particularly important point. But yep. they grow to really, really respect each other and perhaps bond more than any other two characters in the Justice League because they really, truly kind of understand each other. And they begrudgingly understand exactly. the other Exactly. There's, there's a real kind of begrudging respect. And then especially in the Justice League animated series, their relationship in that show and Justice League Unlimited is like mm -hmm. my all-time favorite depiction of those two characters interacting. They have the yeah. perfect moments where Batman will just like do a little smirk as Superman says something in the Watchtower. He he knows what Clark just said. He knew what he was going to say because they know mm -hmm. each other so well and there's that moment I can't remember whether it's the anim one of the animated movies they did fairly recently. It might be the like the Tower of Babel one they did. I can't remember what they called it. Oh because there was Doom. Yeah, uh, they did Doom and a couple of other ones as well. Yeah, and, um, the ones that they based on Jeff Loeb's run, the Superman-Batman movies, like, um, shoot, what uh, was Public it? Enemies. Uh, yeah, Public Enemies was probably my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, there's this moment where Superman says something, and they're like, how the hell do you know that, Superman? And Batman says, well, he's a reporter. That's the kind of thing yeah. a reporter would notice. And you're like, see? That's when they get each other. Like, they have such a perfect, like, 
they they mix like perfectly they come from such different angles and they're basically like leader 1a and 1b of the justice league and in the fact that you know clark trusts bruce with the kryptonite like he you know yeah. at first it's, it's more like it's a defensive thing we've, but it's, we've destroyed it's... all the kryptonite but i think you should have some if the unthinkable ever happens bruce it's like exactly. that's such a huge thing like I know I'm the most powerful being on this planet. I know I could basically just destroy it if I wanted to. And if the worst comes to us, if I'm under mind control or something, or something goes horribly wrong, I trust you. Just some dude. Just <laughs> a human being to be the one to stop me, an almost literal god on Earth. I trust you, Bruce Wayne, just some standard human to stop me, the ever-powerful, basically unstoppable Kryptonian. That says volumes about how much respect and trust they have for each other. And in this, well, the, and in this the film... The reverse is true of Bruce. Absolutely, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's, His countermeasure for if he goes rogue is just the Justice League, and he expects it'll be Clark to do it. Yeah, like, absolutely. He, that's exa- I mean, that's, that's the, the, the linchpin of their relationship is that trust that they have in each other, which is what makes the Dark Knight Returns so important in terms of the destruction, practically, of that relationship, but then also kind of a hopeful renewal of it at the same time. Exactly. And like you're saying, it's that relationship, it's that respect, it's that friendship, it's that slow build to that, that bond that they finally form that gives that fight in the Dark Knight Returns, all the weight in the world. That is why it is the definitive Batman versus Superman fight. They've done it millions of times before, before and since, but there's never been one quite like that. It's because mm-hmm. they come from two ideological different standpoints. The, I'm working for the government, Bruce, and this is the way it has to be, and no, Clark, it doesn't have to be this way. You're just the president's lapdog, is his quote to him. Yeah. And it's the break it's the final breakdown. It's like the final straw, like I don't wanna have to do this, but I know I have to do this. Mm-hmm. Like this this needs to happen for the for the greater good of the planet and of the people of America and the people of the world. With and, this and they've in theory they've never met before. Like, yeah, and no weight to this. He's just gonna show up and be like you blew up most of Metropolis, you dick. I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to wear the big bat suit thing and shine a bat signal on you and all that sort of stuff and then punch you a few times with, I assume, um, kryptonite knuckle dusters somehow. And yeah, if they've, they've introduced kryptonite at all, like, who knows? Exactly. <laughs> there's, there's no weight to that fight at all, and that's what makes that fight interesting. The actual fight isn't that good. Like if yeah. you go back and read those action pages, Frank Miller and whatever, you know, he's a great storyteller, or was. He was mm-hmm. a great storyteller before he went completely insane. Um, mm-hmm. But is that fight, is because there are those two characters, there are to- those two men, they have those two stances on life. That's what makes that interesting. It's a character moment. It's not an action moment that makes that interesting. It's the characters. Yeah. It's the the end of that relationship. They've both gone so far in their respective paths they've eventually diverged and they can't they can't deal with it without coming to blows this is how it has to be i think that is a direct quote like bruce says i'm afraid this is how it has to be clark or something like that mm-hmm. and even at the end there, also, sorry go on like, no sorry uh, also the fact that this book is so firmly rooted in the 80s oh it's i mean oh so 80s 
Yeah, it's entirely a product of its time, which I'm not saying you can't utilize that for a movie made in 24, you know, 2015 or whatever, um, 2016 now, actually. Um, but it's just like, guys, we have to draw on something else. Like, the the fact that you're taking all of these cues from, because, you know, Zack Snyder has his heart on for all of Frank Miller's stuff, is is kind of problematic because, you know, the, the 80s, you know, for what they are, was so ultra machismo, uh, which this movie is just starting to gear up to look like. It's just going to be like, well, these two guys, boom, you know, bang, I don't know, story, what? Exactly. Story? And, and this, this is a Wonder Woman episode. I know we've gone on a huge tangent since then. but going to be a part of it. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> The fact that Wonder Woman is in there, I kind of feel like she's going to get, not mistreated is the wrong word, but kind of underplayed and underused. And I'm oh, really, yeah. really worried that they're just going to have her as like the damsel in distress. I'm like, oh no, won't somebody please do something and stop these big scary men from fighting each other? Like, <laughs> really? I, I, I'm re- I'm, that's a genuine concern. And I never thought yeah. I'd have that idea of, she could go and just kill Bruce Wayne. I know we're against her whole violent thing, but like almost under no circumstances does she need to be like, oh no, what a terrible thing that these two people are, I'm so helpless and blah, blah, blah. And I'm really worried she's going to be basically the damsel in distress. The only way I could see this working with, with her, because they do say that she's going to be both Diana Prince and Wonder Woman in the movie. So it makes me think that at least it's more of an extended cameo. Um because there have been screenshots of her as just Diana Prince at this point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, the shot of her in the, in the outfit. But the only way I see this working is kind of like along the lines of the Avengers, where Batman and Superman are starting to fight. There's probably some bigger thing going on somewhere else that they're not realizing because they're fighting. And then Wonder Woman just shows up and, like, puts a kibosh on the whole thing. She's like, no, guys, guess what? There's something happening over there. Let's go do that and save the world. There's like maybe no no introduction to her as Wonder Woman. She just shows up in the outfit, says like, "Dudes, knock it off. We got to go and help those people." And stops like, you know, we'll probably get a bunch of blows, you know, you know, brought in by Clark and and Bruce and everything. But the only way that I can I really want to see that end is that Wonder Woman shows up to break it up. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That that's the only way I can see that working on a character level, because we can't have a no holds barred fight between Batman and Superman like this. It's just it doesn't work on any thematic level. It's all about making fanboys go, oh, my God, they're on screen together and they're fighting each other. This is everything I've ever wanted. It's like, really, that's the only thing you've ever wanted in life. <laughs> like, Exactly. I would. I'd like to see their friendship, like, actually happen. I mean, I don't know if that's because I'm a girl, and you can blame it on that all you want. Oh, you're, but... you're scared of the two big scary men fighting, are you, Sam? Oh, no. Yeah. It's going to be so much violence. You just, your poor little weak women, woman, female heart can't handle that kind of thing. I, could, I couldn't even get that sentence out. Like I was being so sarcastic. I know, you're just dripping with it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, me, the one who loves the A-Team movie so much. <laughs> like... I mean, you are yeah, you are I, the girliest girl I know, Sam. Let's be honest here. Uh, yeah, it's true. I mean, I'm only always wearing pink and uh, you know putting nail polish on and whatnot because yeah. I like to be a stereotype. Uh, <laughs> but the, yeah, those are the there there are things that this movie could do really well, and I want and I want that to happen. 
but all I'm thinking of is Man of Steel yep. and the yep. potential so lost. That set the tone for their movies for the next six years. Exactly. And, and I did not like that movie no. <laughs> much at all. Like, mm. at all, pretty much. I still want to, like, rewrite scenes from it and just post it because, like, this is how it should have happened from my perspective. Hey, you know that bit where Jonathan Kent basically says, hey, guys, kill all those kids? No, 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 no. Jonathan Kent <laughs> is fundamental in the establishment of Superman as a character. He's the one that tells him doing the right thing is the thing to do. Mm. Pa Kent is the guy that makes him Clark Kent, that makes him Superman, that makes him a hero. He's not the, maybe you should let those kids die, Clark. Like, yeah. Kevin Costner, you <laughs> dick, what are you doing? No, and he Clark, could yeah, have no. just saved him from the tornado. Like, when, yeah, I, when he dies... In the uh, he's previously died in the comics and in the in the films and stuff like that. He dies of a heart attack, and that teaches Clark Kent an important lesson: is that you can't save everybody just because yeah. you're Superman. It doesn't make you literally God. You can't I mean, you can't stop you can't cure cancer. You can't stop heart attacks. Like you will have to deal with loss at some point in your life, and that's a big thing because you're basically this unkillable, unstoppable thing. This mm-hmm. this God on Earth. But there are some and, things you can't control, and that's a big lesson for him. Whereas this is just like, nope, don't do it, just let me die for some reason. Even though you could just run out and get him. Or just get swept away by a tornado, because that's how that works. Yep. Um, well, and, and that's like, like way, uh, way back when, uh, on DC Confidential, when we did the, uh, the review of, of Man of Steel, the, the thing is, like, if you wanted Pa Kent to die in the midst of a tornado, there is still a way that that could happen, and you give agency to Clark. Because he doesn't do anything. We don't know what his power set is at that point. So he could literally do whatever you want him to do at that uh, right there. Because um, it, the whole thing is that he doesn't want him to, to show himself to people. Fine. I get that a father is concerned for his child. But it's a tornado. Like People, have him... people are not going to be staring at that one dude on the ground. While there's a fucking tornado tearing everything up from the ground, wrecking their exactly. lives and destroying their livelihood and homes, they're not going to be like, what's that guy doing over there? They're going to be like, oh my god, we need to run the fuck away. This is an mm-hmm. apocalypse-level weather event. Well, it's like, and, he, and you've established that they were fighting in the car already. Fine, okay. And then when he tells him to go and like protect his mother in the over in, in the in the overpass, whatever, which is the exact wrong thing to do in the midst of a tornado, uh, Clark disobeys his father, goes and starts helping him. He's actually like you know tearing uh, uh, doors off of cars, all that kind of stuff. Things that you can't explain, you know, which you could just He's completely say doing it's a Superman stuff, like yes. So and they're maybe they're even arguing about it or they're giving these each other looks because Clark's like, look, I'm not going to stand by. And Johnson's like, damn it, son. Uh, and then out of nowhere, he gets hit by debris. Like you could just have a, you know, a, a fence like, you know, impale him or something like or that. Or just a car door, just smack him into oblivion. Like be, exactly. just be swept away on a moment's notice. And Clark tries to save him, but. He doesn't really. He's, it happens so quickly that even he can't react to it because he's not fully aware of his powers at that point. Yeah, we haven't even established flight yet for him, and so I mean, it could have also been the first inklings of flight for him, where he tries to go after his dad has gotten swept up after getting hit or something like that. He just that. does a huge jump and like catches him midair out of the tornado, like mm-hmm. classic Superman, where it's the leap taller than the tallest building kind of thing. He doesn't yeah. fly; he just jumps, and he kind of starts off like that in this film. But to be fair. That's probably the best scene in the whole film. 
is the, mm-hmm. is the flying moment when he oh, like God, yeah. puts his fist down to the ground and the like snow swirls around it and stuff like that. You get a real kind of sense of kinetic energy and like this real sense of power and stuff like that. And him leaping across the mountains and stuff like that. Really cool scene. But oh yeah, they could have done that, and he could have like got the inkling of that by saving Parkhead. Yeah, there's just no setup for anything that pays off, and that's, I mean, even the the killing of Zod, if, like, I wouldn't have a problem with that if there had been setup. Like, if there had been something that established, whether through a, their inappropriate flashbacks that made no sense narratively anyway, um, you, know, you could have established more stuff with the, you know, why killing is bad for Clark, because it's not enough to just say, like, well, killing bad, because reasons. Like, you have to establish why for Clark, killing someone like Zod is a huge moment. Like, even though it's completely washed away in the next scene, (laughs) like, uh, there has to be some kind of emotional payoff for these kinds of things. And nothing pays off emotionally. Literally nothing. (laughs) It's just, it's so aggravating. Like, even when he's young... And, you know, when his powers start hitting him all at once, like, that's a really good scene up until the point that Martha shows up. Um, Because, I mean, I wouldn't mind the fact that Martha is, like, coaching him through it or whatever. I almost would have wanted that to happen at home. Like, something happens and he starts freaking out and the the fire starts happening uh, or something like that. And Martha talks him down. He's afraid to even look at her because he thinks that he'll hurt her or something like that. And then you show how Martha is essential to to Clark's upbringing and then have Jonathan and Martha as a married couple talking about it as well. You know, there's no sense of the Kent family. And it pisses me off because the Kent family is what makes Clark who he is. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was saying about the big difference between Bruce and Clark is their upbringing. Mm -hmm. Bruce is brought up by Alfred for all intents and purposes. Clark yeah, his is a is, dying to Cl- find him. Yeah, Clark is a country family man. Like he's a you know, small small town country boy raised by a loving family and they're giving <laughs> him good true American values and all that sort of stuff. That's what defined that character to me. I want him I, people describe like in a derogative term as the big blue boy scout. That is yeah. my superman. I want Christopher Reeve. He's he's yeah. smiling while he's saving people. He's He's living the good life. He's he's the shining light. He's the example to the rest of everybody in that universe. Batman is the dark and brooding one who loses his parents and freaks out and nearly kills people and stuff and has to deal with his own, like, he's killing the right thing to do and stuff like that. Superman yeah. knows that killing isn't the right thing to do because Pa and Ma Kent told him that. Exactly, like he learned, because you you got to believe, a guy who lives on a farm, first of all, they had to be animals, God, you know, at some point he, you know, he doesn't know his own strength for it when he's young, so what if he accidentally killed an animal or something like that? I mean, there are narrative beats you can take with Clark that make him relevant and relatable uh, without, uh, you know, sacrificing his origins in the 1940s. You know, it's it's so possible, they did it with Captain America. But you can still have the Boy Scout mentality, but still put it in a modern context. Captain America is more Superman than Superman is at this point. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's it's just so mind-boggling how easily they screw this character up. 
and and going forward, this is the one we have to kind of you know stick with. I'm hoping beyond all hope that Chris Terrio, who was brought in to basically rewrite um, Justice League and maybe Superman, I think Superman. Uh, yeah, and, he, and he's done Batman vs Superman as well. Yeah, he's uh, if he's just rewritten the whole thing, hopefully, because I want to believe he can at least try to fix some stuff. <laughs> Because there's no completely fixing Man of Steel, no matter what you do. Exactly. But you can hope that the next movie at least tries to write a few things. Yeah, yeah. Let's, and I think that we need to stop there because we've been going on for so long. Yep. And this will now be officially the longest podcast of uh, That Girl with the Curls. Well done, Jack. Um, the two times I've guested on people's podcasts, this, and I've been on uh, Mandy Osipenko's um, Little Geek Lost oh, yeah. podcast as well. Both of these times have been the longest episode ever in this podcast. So I'm quite a bad influence, apparently. You apparently are. Yeah, like, yeah. Just the worst. I'm, I'm sorry about that. We, did, I just get onto rants, and then that makes other people rant, and we start spinning off into crazy tangents and stuff. Dude, I love talking about this stuff with you, so I don't oh, care. Yeah. Like, if people tuned out halfway through, fuck it. I, <laughs> I just had fun talking to you again. I haven't exactly. talked to you forever. We're, we're doing, like, three years' worth of catch-up here as well. So it's like... Yeah, pretty much. Like, <laughs> so how's life? How you been? Like... <laughs> Um, but uh, thank you, Jack, for coming on my podcast uh, uh, on, on all technical levels here. Uh, where can people find you online? I've done a couple of shameless plugs already, but you can listen to my podcast. It's I say my podcast. I co-host it with two friends of mine. Um, mm-hmm. We do the in- Intercomics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's partly mine. Um, the Intercomics podcast, all about comics. We talk about uh, the weekly comics, uh, all the sort of up-to-date news and stuff like that, uh, talking about our favourite covers of the week. Uh, and we often do, um, at the moment we're doing um, sort of a segment all about 52, the weekly series that DC did back in like 2007, 2008. Um, we're coming up to the end of that. We started that in January of this year, and it's going to run from January 2014 to January 2015. I think ne- <laughs> next week is issue 49, so we're, oh. we're we're getting towards the end of that, but that is one of my all-time favorite series, and I've really been enjoying talking about that. We also do um, Comic of the Month as well. Uh, we recently, our latest episode that came out, um, when's this going up, by the way, Sam? Sorry, that's, a, that's an uh, edit point there. Probably, no, it's fine. I, I, I don't really do a lot of editing unless it's like I really have to. Um, it's, uh, it'll probably go out in about two weeks. Okay, cool. So yeah, our, our episode from a couple of weeks ago, um, we did... Civil War, um, the, mm-hmm. the Marvel event, and we've we've covered a lot of other stuff. We've covered a bunch of DC stuff um, previously as well, and, and lots of other you know image and independent things as well. Um, you can check out all of our articles and reviews and stuff like that on intercomicspodcast.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at intercomicspod as well. I'm on Twitter at jlwchambers, so you can come and check out my ranting and raving about Zack Snyder and David Goyer on there as well. And, uh, and often see like conversations between me and Jack at sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if if I'm ranting about something, chances are Sam will chip in or vice versa. So, exactly. Uh, <laughs> like you said, we we bond over our rage. So uh, rage bond. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to have you come on um, into comics at some point, Sam. Yeah, have we, have the, we just the full have crossover. Have... Yeah, exactly. It's like the greatest crossover event ever. Exactly. Crisis on Infinite Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the moment fans around the world have been waiting for. 
Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I look I look forward to that. I'll have to figure that one out because uh, it usually means missing a day of work for me. Yeah, <laughs> timings and time zones and stuff are a bit of a pain in the ass. But thank you very much Damn for you and your time zones. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for accommodating me and and having me on and stuff. I'm I'm honoured. I've I've listened I've listened to all the episodes so far and kind of the fact that I'm on here with like Janet Varney and <laughs> wonder, animated Wonder Woman herself like that's mm-hmm. kind of a bit scary so thank you very much no, for having me on. Oh no, I every time every any time Jack. I mean it it does not matter. I will find a way to talk to you about uh, whatever we want to talk about. Um, <laughs> like I said, we like should, I said, we should definitely do a, a like Paul Dini animated verse episode at some point. I feel yep. I feel that's our next big topic. I'm there. I am so there. My body is ready. <laughs> the mind is willing, but the flesh is spongy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, again, thank you, Jack. Uh, I definitely miss talking to you, and uh, we will do this again very soon. Um, but goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Press